Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN, joined by my guy, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC Austin, headlined by a featherweight belt between Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett. Very good fight there. Very interesting to see how Cater bounces from that or uses the momentum from the Giga Chikadze fight and tries to propel forward. And then on the flip side with Josh Emmett, that guy's been begging for respect for a long time now. So uh, this is a prime spot for him to go out there and showcase to us that he deserves that top spot. But Cody, it feels like forever since we've spoken to one another. Always happy to see your face. Always happy to talk fights with you. Not at the normal time that we're usually doing on Thursdays. I'm flying out tomorrow morning, but uh, glad that we can still make this happen on a Wednesday night. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, good. And uh, Canadian summer is still pretty light outside, so don't feel like 9 o'clock. But uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Showtime. Always be happy. Always happy to be talking fights with you. And yeah, I know it feels like time flies so damn fast, or I guess so damn slow, but you miss a car, they have a week off, and then last week you got married. Congratulations. So uh, a little bit busy, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, it feels like I haven't talked to you in a while. But this is a low-key, kind of a tasty card. Like There's some really yeah. fun fights on the card. Not only that, but it is chalk heavy, but there's a couple spots that you do feel good about. There's a couple props you do feel good about. And right when you get that little tingling sensation in the bottom of your stomach where you're like, I like this card. It's like, ooh, it's in Texas. So <laughs> how is the commission going to try to screw me over? That is the million dollar question. And hopefully you and I can figure that one out together. Yeah, I, I'm thinking just off the top of my head, I think we might have more fights that finish inside the distance. So hopefully that pays off for us, but we shall see how it all goes down. First thing we want to do, though, is obviously say uh, thank you to Bet Online, who's obviously sponsoring the show here. Make sure you guys check out the link in the description below. They will match your initial deposit 50% up to $1,000. So make sure you guys take full advantage of that because we all know Bet Online, probably one of the best out there in terms of getting early lines and betting on regional MMA as well. And then on the flip, Side cloud bet as well, working very good with us in tandem. They've been putting together a lot of great props for you guys just based off the show. We have a couple we'll share with you later on, but I do want to take this opportunity to go right into how the props, the special props did for the last event for UFC 275. So me and Cody obviously were not able to break it down, but I still want to show you guys how those props ended up shaking out. So Glover to share uh takedowns. We had over under two and a half. The overheads. Over two and a half, he ends up hitting five takedowns that night, plus 120. I bet a lot of people didn't expect that fight to go as long as it did, though. So I understand why that line was only at two and a half. Second, we had the and new parlay, which was Prohaska and Santos to both win. That does not hit. Uh, so it goes to a minus 1,000 for them to not both win. Uh, and still parlay Shevchenko and Teixeira. Obviously, they split it as well. If you bet the no, it was minus 286. Uh, and then last or two more things here. Uh, we have the Fight of the Night Award, which actually went to the main event, which was plus 900 win on Teixeira and Prohaska. I think I would have put a little bit of coin on that as well had I seen that line there. Uh, and then lastly here for Team China, uh, they had two of the three fighters actually win there with Zhang and Mahashate. I know Cody lost on that one and had to do a, uh, a shoey better today. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that. the hell kind of beer that was too. It was rank, man. It tasted <laughs> like red wine. It was beer, but it was rank. <laughs> well, he got it done. 
because Mahashate got the knockout victory over Steve Garcia. That cash is for plus 165. And I did forget there are a couple more that didn't uh, that we didn't go over here. Uh, there were two actually here for total takedowns and total stoppages on the full card. Unfortunately, it ended up being null because uh, it says only for 12 bouts. If you guys remember, uh, Bontarine missed weight. That fight got uh, scrapped. So, uh, yeah, those two props were null. Uh, we did have fastest finish on the full card, or sorry, on the main card. It was Jack Della Maddalena at plus 1,200. He dispatches of Ramazan Amiv a lot easier than most people expected, but uh, that's a catch right there. And then lastly, fastest finish on the entire card. There were a couple one-minute finishes on this card, but it was ultimately... Sorry, Cody. Mahashate, who catches at plus 2,300 if you had chosen him to win that fight. Uh, and, and the fastest on the card, that's what you would have cashed. So once again, shout out to CloudBet. Link is in the description below. They do a great job with partnering with us and, and making these uh, props for you guys. So make sure you guys check them out and let them know that we sent you. All right, Cody. Let's not waste any more time. We got 14 fights to get through here. So let's start off the, at the bottom here. According to Topology, the first fight of the night is a middleweight scrap between Phil Hawes and Deron Wynn. In terms of odds, we got minus 260 now for Phil Hawes and plus 220 the return on Deron Wynn. This was a fight, you know, scheduled a couple times over the last several months. It kept falling out. Now here we're hopefully, you know, knock on wood, it's still Wednesday of fight week. Hopefully we still get it this Saturday. Um, off the top, Cody, like I, I don't know if I can trust Phil Hawes at that minus 260 line, right? He's a very inconsistent fighter. Some days he shows great improvements like the Nasruddin Mimovov fight and even the Kyle Dawkins fights, and then he gets knocked out cold by a guy, Chris Curtis, in his last fight there as well. Uh, Drawn win, you know, credentially speaking, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, Cody, is the better wrestler, right? On paper, Drawn win has more accolades, essentially, and that's probably going to be his advantage here, but Phil Hawes is a very difficult guy to take down, so uh, I'll be interested to see See how Deron Wynn decides to approach this. I'm expecting we're going to see some, uh, uh, you know, heavy leather being thrown uh, during this fight. Uh, it depends on who ends up knocking out who first, essentially. Or is this going to be one of those spots where we get them pushing each other up against the cage and they try to slow it down and try to just win by control time or by position? Like I said earlier, I can't back Phil Hawes at heavy chalk. I don't mind the small poke on Deron Wynn, no pun intended there, but I still believe that uh, he he can make this a lot closer than the odds suggest. Um, if I were to force to bet here, it would probably be the Deron Wynn side, but in terms of actual props, uh, win by decision plus 400, not too shabby. And uh, on the other side, Hawes by decision plus 200. You know, I feel like that's how it might turn out. People see these types of fights and think, oh, somebody's going to get knocked out, but knowing their styles and how Phil Hawes has been trying to elevate his game or improve his game. And a lot of it is set on not emptying the gas tank early, using your wrestling, using your grappling and try to slow down the fight. So uh, maybe the overs and, and a decision prop on either side is kind of what I'm leaning. What about you? Am I, am I off on this read here? We've broken down this fight a couple times now, mm -hmm. right? How do you ultimately feel about it now? Yeah, we've broken down a couple times. Honestly, they're both NJCAA national champions. So they're both junior college national champions. And then Phil Hawes transferred over to University of Iowa, which is a D1 program. Whereas Deron Wynn went to go out on like USA, like the the national team. And that's where he probably had his best success as a wrestler. But at five foot six, he's just like so stumpy of a man that it hasn't translated over to MMA. I know what you're saying. Maybe they're just going to throw leather, but. Phil Hawes, he's got big dynamite power, but I think he's starting to get a little tentative to throw it because he doesn't want to gas out. And 
Deron Wynn, he doesn't really show nothing in the way of knockouts. Keep in mind that this is a guy that went the full 15 minutes with Eric Spicely and Tom Lawler and hit them both plenty. Just doesn't have the stinging pop in his hands. Here's the biggest question mark about this fight. Look at Deron's win career, right? Uh, debut, 203 pounds. Devin Fisher, 191 pounds. Cody Sons, 205 pounds. Ahmed White, 192. Tom Lawler, 205. Eric Spicy, uh, 185. Looks like shit. First time making middleweight. Doesn't look good. Three to one favorite over Eric Spicely, but really was a letdown that night. Got the win, but didn't look good. Okay. Next fight against Darren Stewart, misses weight, 188.5. Can't make the middleweight limit. Short little stubby guy, but he's fought as high as 205. His walk around weight's 213. He has an entire career of cutting weight. He's getting a little older now. Don't think he cuts it the same. So he misses weight, and you remember that fight. He looks like crap, right? He tires out. He ends up getting finished. Jeremy Rashard, he makes the weight. What happens when he makes 185 on the dot? He ends up tiring, takes too much on his body. He has a decent enough first round, but not great. Second round, he gets hurt to the body. Third round, he gets put away and rear naked choked. So bad performances when he's making that 85 limit. He shows, topology shows he wrestled uh, Colin Moore, again, on his walk-around weight of 213 pounds. And then his last fight against Antonio Arroyo, he looked a lot better, right? But it's a catch weight of 195 pounds. The UFC Taylor makes it for him. Arroyo's short notice comes in, gives up 12 takedowns. <clears throat> but it's not like Deron Wynn has any top control. He can just get the takedowns. Same thing with the Darren Stewart fight. He got six takedowns. Unfortunately, six for 15 against Darren Stewart, not cutting it. And when he does get the takedowns, he can't do nothing with it. <clears throat> the way that the new judging criteria is, if you're just getting takedowns and you're just getting a little control, but you're not actually doing any damage, they're not scoring it. And if you watch that Deron Wynn fight and look at the fight metric numbers as well, he lands 20 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes, no ground and pound, no real stand-up. He can just take you down, you get back up, and he takes you down again. It's not pretty. It's effective at a low level, but eventually you're going to run into your match. I think Haas's wrestling is the best of anybody that Deron wins fought in the UFC so far, so it's not crazy to think that Haas is going to stuff a few of these takedowns. As far as the stand-up goes, like I feel like it's a little bit better. Hard to believe that this would play out strictly as a kickboxing match, but Again, Haas is a little more explosive. I think he's got a, is it like a, I don't know if it's a five-inch reach advantage. I forget exactly what the numbers are on it, but he's going to be a little bit bigger, a little bit longer, and he's just got to make sure he doesn't get gassed out having a, a straight-up wrestling match. But I really think you got to wait until the weigh to see what Deron Wynn looks like, if he makes the weight, what kind of shape he's in. Could be a good live betting uh, fight. But to be honest with you, I think the best prop here is that over two and a half, which is about even money. I think it covers it from a number of angles. If Phil Hawes wins, Deron win is difficult to put away. He can get put away, as you saw in, uh, say, the Jeremy Sharp fight, but you're going to have to take him into those deeper waters. And Phil Hawes is not exactly a cardio machine himself, so probably becomes a slow bog of a wrestling match with Phil Hawes landing a few more better strikes and then ultimately him getting the decision. But I think the best props at even money uh, over two and a half. I like it. And in regards to the metrics here, the, the disadvantage that Duran wins going to be at, it's five inches in terms of height, seven inches in terms of reach. And it's a big cage. Always it's a fight night yeah. card, but it's not in the apex, right? So it's a full-size cage. And just when have you watched Duran win in the UFC and been like, damn, not bad. Like I had him bet over Arroyo, but it was awful, dude. It was some yeah. awful stuff. And then for the record, since the Arroyo fight, since all this uh, weight mishaps, all this, you're right. They booked the Phil Haas fight the first time around, and he pulls out with a rib injury. So they rebook it three months later, and he pulls out again. Now they've rebooked it again, like, and he's got to make 185. Like, I don't know, man. He, he's 33 years old, and I would say that the weight cuts have taken their toll. He's probably better suited at 205. But can you name one other five, five foot six, 205? <laughs> no, <laughs> I can't. And I know I can name you a lot of fighters. 
uh, it's just not a weight class for him. So he's forced to zap himself down. In fact, 195 is best for him. You know, Rich Franklin weight. Fight at 195 be great. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. And I think he's doing himself a great disservice by trying to get down to middleweight. There we go. I, I'm just happy that we don't have to talk about this fight anymore. Yeah, I mean, let's get it over with. Third time we pretty much talked about it. Let's get it over with, and we'll finally see if Phil Hawes is worth the chalk, as you know, some people believe. We'll see how it goes down. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Another middleweight scrap. We got Kyle Dacus going up against Roman Delize in terms of odds, minus 255 on Kyle Dacus, plus 215 on Roman Delize. Uh, again, Dacus, Haas, there's a couple other guys on the rest of this card that are always like that minus 200 to minus 280 range whenever they fight a certain you know level of guys. And this is a classic example of another one where, you know, Delize, we're still trying to figure out what we're getting with the guy, right? Like he's, his bread and butter has got to be like, getting guys to the ground, controlling them, using his jujitsu, asking his coach if he wants to submit him now or not, like the stupid shit like that. And right? Falling but, back on a leg lock. Like, and then no, falling back, yeah, move, giving up move. position. Yes. Like, not good fight IQ at all, especially when you're not able to get the finish after that. And then on the flip side with Kyle Dawkins, I, I love everything that kid does, man. He has a developing striking. Obviously, his bread and butter is his ground game as well. He's very long. He does well in the clinch area, being able to just smother his opponents and then trip them or drag them to the ground. And I think he should be able to implement that pressure here pretty well against Roman Delize. Do I believe he should be a minus 255? I have a little bit of issue with that, but I would rather play his prop here. Like Delize, very difficult to put away. The guy's durable. You know, he has a heart like a champion in terms of not giving up on certain spots or not uh, tapping out to certain uh, submission attempts. I'd be surprised if Dawkins locks him up in anything here to, to give him any trouble, but I do think he'll land uh, significant strikes from uh, dominant positions, dragging the fight to the ground and just kind of controlling him there. And I think he can hold his own in the striking because the striking, I think, is just deletes a you know power shot. So he, he doesn't, there's no combinations with the man. You know what I mean? He's just trying to take your head off, essentially. If Dawkins can use that against him, parlayed into takedowns i think this is his fight to win so give me uh give me docus give me the overs as well let me get the actual numbers here for you guys the over two and a half minus 150 i don't mind that fight goes to decision minus 120 sign me up for that and then docus by decision plus 150 i don't mind it what are your thoughts here you, you got more love for leader or am i just shitting on him the perfect amount yeah, no, I would shit on him the exact same amount. He's actually got a lot of parallels almost to a Duran win. It's like the guy actually starts his career as a heavyweight, right? Like he's yeah. fighting, well, up to 265, but let's see a recorded weight. Well, he's at heavyweight. Then he goes to light heavyweight, and then he makes his UFC debut against Kadis Abragamov, 205. Looks pretty good. Kadis is terrible. Well, actually, it's only like a six-fight winning streak since he got cut, eh? So whack. But uh, yeah, he beats Kaz and Bragamov at 205. He actually doesn't look terrible. The John Allen fight, not a great fight, but again, at 205 pounds, he doesn't look terrible. And then for whatever reason, he decides, I'm going to drop down 20 pounds down to 185. <laughs> now, it's not, if you jump from lightweight to featherweight, you jump from a lot of these weight classes, it's, it's a 10 pound jump. Featherweight to bantamweight, bantamweight to flyweight. He's essentially dropping two weight classes, making that 205 to 185 drop. The result is, one of the worst fights you've ever seen in your life against Trevin Giles, oh, where he, he has almost no success. His wrestling's really not all that good. His grappling's really not all that good. His striking's really not all that good. There's not a whole lot that he does well. Again, when you look at the numbers, they're just so goddamn low. He lands 32 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes. Then the Lario on his Poli fight, he landed 14 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes. And to boot, he got taken down three times by Leonardo Staropoli. 
uh, undersized welterweight who is jumping up to middleweight to fight a guy that made his debut at heavyweight. Does any of this make sense? No, but Delete's not that good. So I don't really know what element of his game I particularly like, but with Kyle Dauk as BJJ Black Belt, his brother's obviously a good serviceable heavyweight, and I really think Doukas is making a lot of improvements to his own striking. You saw him in the Kevin Holland fight, looked a lot more comfortable, looked a lot more improved. Uh, the Phil Hawes fight, yes, he lost that fight, but his wrestling, his takedown defense looked much better. You know, his ability to thwart off all dam- all like real damage off the ground was good. Defensively very sound. I think he's growing comfortable. His only other loss in the UFC is that Brandon Allen fight. Takes it on short notice. Wins the third round against Brandon Allen. Never quit in that fight. Kept coming. I think there's a lot that you can like about him. And that last fight was Jamie Pickett. It's much of the same. You know, his striking looks much improved. His footwork looks good. His speed looks good. And he becomes the first man to choke out Jamie Pickett when he snaps him up with the darts. For the record, Jamie Pickett had actually won two straight going into that fight and was doing pretty good at just like holding guys up against the cage and controlling them physically. But you can see Doug is strong. He's explosive. He was well on his way to winning the Kevin Holland fight before the unfortunate no contest due to a headbutt. Like I get it, but he did choke the guy out. And I don't know how you turn that back to a no contest. Cost me a lot of money that night. Anyway, it's not here to argue it. I like Kyle Doe because I like what he brings to the table. And I think that this is a good spot for him. So when you're looking at some of the big fight, uh, favorites on the card, which ones are potential apple pie shares, which one do you actually like? I like Doukas because two reasons. Dolitz's style of potentially getting takedowns but scoring no ground and pound, right? Not scoring anything really meaningful. They're not scoring that these days. You see it on every single card. It's like the real the real question is, oh, did, did Malcoon beat Allen? Did he do enough with the takedowns? Did, did Hawley win that fight? did you do enough control uh did, did did eric anders win that fight with enough control against the cage but the judges are not reacting to it they want to see damage they want to see a little bit more and second of all it's texas and as bad of a commission as it is <clears throat> i would think that they're looking for a little more violence right i would think that they're looking for a little more you know you don't necessarily have you just have the big moments in the rounds right the big moments and i don't think the big moments are going to be coming from roman delete so Sign me up for uh, Doukas. The prop that I like here is that Doukas by decision, which you can have about plus 140, plus 150. I think Dolitz's BJJ is good enough that he's not going to get submitted. I think his chin is good enough that he should be able to take his shots. But, uh, you know, Doukas could, if he comes out as like a, a good progressive, getting better, 28 years old, still making improvements, maybe he finishes him late. But I got a feeling that Roman Dolitz is still tough enough, Georgian strong, BJJ black belt, like enough to just hopefully stay out of harm's way and just lose a decision quietly. Yeah, it will be interesting to see who is able to establish that grappling success. But given everything that you just laid out, man, it's tough to go against Dawkins in this spot. I get why he's a big favorite. Let's see if he can deliver come Saturday night. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're looking at Cody Stamen going up against Eddie Wineland. In terms of odds, heavy chalk on Cody Stamen, minus 550, plus 385, the return on Eddie Wineland. Uh, very weird fight, right? Actually, any fight Eddie Wineland fights at this point in his career is a weird fight to me. Like, I, I'm still surprised that he's going out there and, and fighting. I remember going back and watching UFC 128 live uh, in New Jersey when he took on uh, Uriah Faber in the co-main event of that John Jones Shogun Hua card. And he's still here. You know, he's still doing the damn thing, but uh, hasn't really been going the greatest for him in terms of, uh, you know, parlaying enough wins to Together here like in his last five fights he's one and four right he has a he had that knockout victory over Gregory Popov sandwich in the middle there but he's coming off a, a knockout loss to Sean O'Malley a knockout loss to uh John Castaneda and you know Cody Stamen not much of a knockout puncher so I don't think he has to worry too much about that but he's gonna have to worry about like a relentless grappling style not to mention his karate style from the outside where he likes to use his kicks a lot uh reminiscent of his former stablemate Mr. Darren Crookshank uh they always you know have that type of 
uh, karate style from the outside, but they actually have wrestling capabilities as well. And Cody Stamen, definitely one of the better wrestlers in this spot, uh, which is why I thought he would give Saeed Ramagamedov some issues last time around. Saeed's like, nah, dog. You forgot who I am. And then he finishes uh, Cody Stamen. I believe that was, yeah, 47 seconds. I believe he heard him, and then he just jumped on the guillotine choke and then got him out of there. So good win for Saeed, but a uh, tough loss for Cody Stamen. That's the third in a row now that he has in terms of losses uh dating back to july of 2020 where he lost to jimmy rivera uh then he took a year and a half off lost to marab and then lost to Said. those are not bad names to lose to a row right like it's not like he's going out there and losing to a fringe top 20 guy he's losing to solid guys in that top 15 top 20 area now this is more so of a cupcake layup for him hopefully that's where he's expecting it to be do i trust him at minus 500 yeah Actually, you know, I, I do. I think he, he'll be able to stay safe here. Eddie Wineland, you know, he's tricky with his power and how he's able to, you know, let it go. But I just don't think he's going to be able to catch Cody here with anything. I think we'll see Cody push him up against the cage if he needs to, drag him to the ground, just grind this fight out. Get that dub, right? At the end of the day, it's all about getting that dub. He's been walking home with half of his paychecks over his last three fights. But I think here he should be able to scrape out the victory here. And uh, in terms of props, like, can you go with anything other than uh, Cody Stamen via decision, right? Let's see what that line is currently looking like. Uh, they don't, minus oh, 130. Minus then... 130, right? Like, that that's the way to play him, essentially, because historically speaking, <clears throat> that's how he wins. But uh, we'll see. Maybe Eddie Wineland's chin is really starting to deteriorate. One of those big shots from Cody Stamen could really change the, the way this fight's going. Maybe he gets a knockout victory, but... Uh, if we're going off of stats, if we're going off of history, you got to go with Stamen by decision. So that's where I'm going. What about yourself here? Yeah, okay. So feeling much of the same, Cody Stamen, Cody Stamen by decision at minus 130. But but when when you say, well, Cody Stamen is really not knocking out guys, it's like, yeah, all right. Well, because he's fighting Saeed Nurmagomedov and Rob Devashvili, Jimmy Rivera, Brian Keller, Song Yudong, a fight he should have won, by the way, uh, Aljamain Sterling, Brian Caraway. Man, these are good guys. He's not knocking them. For the record, Tarion Ware is cast iron, right? Yeah. Tom Dukanoy was supposed to be the shit once upon a time. Never the really fired that. kid. Yeah, the fireball kid, man. He was yeah, like, I remember I used to watch him in Bama. He legitimately looked good. But uh, French Muay Thai doesn't really translate in the octagon, apparently. Uh, Cody Stamen's like done nothing but fight the best guys available to him. He's fought at 135 and 145. He's actually done fairly decent at 145 pounds. There's a lot that you can like about him. And so to say he's not a power puncher, fair, because he really isn't, but maybe unfair in that he's been fighting guys that are not likely to get knocked out by actual power punchers, let alone, you know, a mediocre guy. When you look at Eddie Wineland, he, he fights very defensively, uh, irresponsibly. Both of his hands are just way down at his side. And he like relies solely on the basis of his reflexes, getting his head out of the way. It used to work back in the day because he was quick and he was agile. And on top of that, because his hands are so low, Eddie Wineland is very difficult to take down. He's got very solid takedown defense. But the older he's got, the reflexes aren't there anymore. The speed's not there anymore. The agility's not there anymore. And these guys are just beating him to the punch and knocking him out. His last two fights are great indicators of that. Knocked down in the first round. John Castaneda has some power, right? But to just melt him in the first round like that is certainly a bad sign. And the Sean O'Malley one, very interesting. Because O'Malley doesn't really load up on any one punch like you saw in the Chris Moutinho fight. Like he just kind of touch, touch, goes, touch, touch, go. Uh, the reason why everyone thought, geez, Moutinho's got one hell of a chin and then gets absolutely sparked out there by Guido Canetti in the first round in his next fight. So there are certain levels to it. But you see with Eddie, it's not necessarily a super hard punch as much as it's accuracy. You just hit him right on the button. Because his hands are right by down, down by his side, he's not defending himself. 
those shots become a lot more easy to pick up on. So I feel like Stamen's a little bit too fast, a little bit too agile, probably does beat him with a punch. And if you're going to crack him clean in the face, he's 39 years old. He's coming off back-to-back first-round knockout losses. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a problem. Now, I understand what the UFC is doing. They've got a 31, 32-year-old Cody Stamen who is a company guy, okay? They say, hey, dude, do you want to fight? Uh, hey, okay, think about this, right? Man, we got this killer from France. They say Tom Dukanoy is the real deal, right? Uh, Cody Stamen's a plus 150 underdog against him, but he takes it because he wants the tough fight. He rebounds from that by fighting Brian Caraway. Brian Caraway's a perennial top <clears throat> five, top 10 guy. Beats Brian Caraway. He takes the Aljamain Sterling fight. He took Song Yadong, and nobody wanted that fight. He took Jimmy Rivera. He took Murad Bavashvili. He did Saeed Dramagomedov. As a company, trust me, I'm matchmaking. As a matchmaker, as a company, when you've got a guy that's got his hand up, that's like, I'll take whatever you give me. I want to fight the toughest guys. Doesn't turn them down. Shows up. Makes weight. Fights his heart out. Those are the guys you want to keep around. They're trying to reward him. They want to get him back on track. He needs a win. And so they're giving him a 39-year-old Eddie Wineland. And for Eddie... Eddie's a former WEC champ. Eddie's got a longevity. Eddie's got a reputation. They're not going to give him a murderous power puncher. They're going to give him somebody who on paper is not really going out there and dicing fools. So it kind of makes sense on both ends. But I think only one guy's going to go forward in their career, and the UFC knows that, and it's the guy that's 10 years younger. So I really do think he's going to get the job done now. I always talk about, you know, all you beat guys, but the guys are no longer with the promotion. And in Eddie Wineland's case, so Gregory Popov <laughs> just got knocked in 26 seconds. But outside of him, these are the rest of his wins. Takei Mizugaki, long since retired. Frankie Sainz, retired. Yves Jean Boy, retired. Brad Pickett, retired. Scott Jorgensen, retired. Ken Stone, retired. Campuzano, George Root, Manny Tapia, which Dude, <laughs> there's not one single guy that hasn't been retired for like three to five years that he's defeated. Now I know he's not super active, but it's like the wins are just, he's, he's, he's from a different era. Really? He really is. And I think that competing at this level in this day and age is going to be a problem. So listen, I don't have to tell you any new information. Cody Stevens, a five, five fifty favorite, five to one favorite. We all agree about the fact that he should win. It's you and I are trying to figure out what's the juiciest problem. What's the best way to attack it. You're saying statement by decision. And I largely do agree, but like a little sinking feeling at the bottom of my stomach that it's like, Yo, it's MMA, four ounce gloves. If he touches Eddie Wineland clean on the chin, he's going to topple him over. And I, uh, I don't know that I would want like a ton of investment on that Cody Stamen by decision just because, you know, recency bias. Uh, Eddie Wineland, I believe the first fight that he has on the Zufa record, which dates back to his WEC days, May 5th, 2006. It was WEC. Uh, where he knocks out Antonio Benuelos in the first round. Benuelos. So, not really going partner. good for the Cinco de Mayhem uh, fighters that were going out there and fighting. But uh, yeah, no, I, I even looked through it. Through his UFC career, 15 UFC fights, uh, only been taken down three times, and two of those was by Uriah Faber in his UFC debut. So very difficult to take down to what oh, yeah. he was talking about. 86% takedown defense, I believe, is what it is as well. So yeah, uh, Eddie Wyland will definitely make you fight for your money there and uh, have to keep it on the feet. We'll see if Cody Stamen can implement his wrestling here. All right, let us move on to the next fight here. We got Danny Chavez going up against Hikaru Hamosh uh, in the featherweight division in terms of odds. We're currently looking at minus 300 for Hikaru Hamosh, plus 250 the return on Danny Chavez. And it's interesting to see Danny Chavez back down to, you know, plus 200 numbers uh, after everybody was pretty high on him after that victory over TJ Brown. Even comes in as the favorite against Jared Gordon, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, Kai Kamaka fight, very interesting fight there in terms of, you know, 
it looked like Kai Kamaka was in control of that fight for the majority of it, right? He was kind of walking him down, using combinations, whereas Johnny Chavez was just looking for those big shots to try to get him out of there. Ultimately, Kai Kamaka does lose a, a point, I believe, in the second round, which forces that fight to go to a draw. Uh, but I feel like this might look like the Kamaka fight, maybe worse, because I think Kamosh is maybe a, a better striker than Kamaka, and he could probably put it on better on Danny Chavez. Chavez, it seems like he needs that calf kick to, to find any victory, right? That's why how he was able to dispatch with TJ Brown, use that calf kick and really slowed him down and just opened up with his hands after that. Wasn't able to do it against Jared Gordon because he was cracking to the pressure of Gordon. Uh, Hamosh, I could see him picking him apart from outside. I could even see him trying to mix it up with his jiu-jitsu, take this fight to the ground. But I completely understand why Hikaru Hamosh is a big, big favorite in this spot. I don't mind parlaying him, but in terms of picking a prop just for that one spot, Chavez, tough to put away. Hamosh, he's a wild man. He'll, he'll, he'll fight uh, Hamosh by TKO is plus 800. Ooh, I don't know about that. Maybe a Hamosh sub plus 400 or a Hamosh by decision minus 130. I would entertain a possible finish here from Hamosh, but uh, let me know what your thoughts are here. What, what do you think about this fight? Yeah, I think Hamosh, Hamosh by decision. Like Danny yeah. Chavez, pretty limited, but he seems durable enough. His takedown defense, not that bad. Like I know it's an aspect of his game that he worked a lot on. And in the TJ Brown fight, it helped that he completely blew out TJ's first uh, front leg before TJ even tried to wrestle him. But again, I think that there's something that you could actually not not terrible about his takedown defense. The striking, he's got the low calf kick. That's good. He, he winds up on, on big punches, you know. I mean, at times, it potentially could be good. But two serious problems. One, the volume's just not there for him. He waits way too long for to see what his opponent's going to do. Against Jared Gordon, it's a terrible way of fighting because Jared Gordon's a bit of a volume guy. He likes to push a pace, likes to get up pressure. And in that fight, again, he gets outstruck like uh 82 to 39 right so he gets almost tripled up on the striking numbers uh, doesn't look particularly good and then in the kamaka fight if you go on mma decisions of the 14 media members two of them had it a draw 12 of them scored at 30 27 for kamaka with a point deduction making it a 29 27 12 of them right kai kamaka did outstrike him he landed the bigger shots it didn't look like chavez really all that interested he looked extremely limited and vulnerable to me. I didn't think it was a good performance. And he was a, uh, you know, second round low blow, gives it a point deduction. He was able to scrape by a draw. It hasn't been particularly all that good for him. I think Hamos, younger, faster, way longer, five inch reach advantage. Again, they're going to be in the big cage. I think he's going to fight effectively from the outside and just put up some volume. He might be able to drag the fight to the ground. Getting a clean takedown is going to be difficult, but he might be able to backpack him up against the cage or just, you know, get him into a, a compromising situation and just kind of pull him to the mat. If he does get the fight to the mat, Jiu-Jitsu is definitely going to give him an edge. But uh, yeah, I just Chavez is tough enough. I think he's just going to be able to take the beating for the 15 minutes. I hope he doesn't land one of these big wild overhand rights because Hamosh does has a tendency of standing a little upright with his head up in the air. And again, when you're tall and you're skinny like that, the leg's going to be available to get kicked as well. There are weapons that Chavez could use effectively. I just don't think he's got a volume to use them enough, right? You're going to have to throw lots of overhand rights. You're going to have to throw lots of leg kicks. I'm just not confident he's actually going to do that. So I think Hamish just goes out there, puts the volume out, paces him, and then ends up winning this thing on the scorecards. So Hamosh by decision, I think it's about plus 130, uh, or sorry, minus 130. Yeah, uh, That's kind of how, how I'm leaning with it. 
Perfect. All right, let's move on to this next one here. You got a women's strawweight strap or scrap, I should say, between Gloria De Paula versus Maria Oliveira. In terms of odds, we got some chalk on the De Paula side at minus two sixty, plus two twenty. The return on Oliveira. Now, I this is the last matchup that I have yet to get to in terms of looking into Maria Oliveira. For me, it's mainly just off of a memory with the uh, Tabitha Ricci fight, a fight where a lot of people expected Tabitha Ricci to get the quick finish there. Ultimately, it goes the full fifteen minutes, and we see some decent things from what i recall decent striking you know could could uh have slightly better takedown defense but gloria de paul is one of those women i haven't really been the highest on i don't know like six and four record but even just watching her fight i feel like there are spots where you can see her starting to slow down and uh maybe a fighter like maria Oliveira could take advantage of that the diana balbita fight very close very very, very close fight, especially in terms of significant strikes. I think they were only off by like one or two strikes, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, then before that, obviously having two straight losses to Jin Fry and Cheyenne Bays or Cheyenne Vlismus. Uh, it, it was the it was the wrestling ultimately of Jinu Fried late in that fight that got her the W there, and I'm not sure if Maria Oliveira will have that uh, that advantage to be able to take her to the ground and kind of grind her out in those spots. I'm not, you know, keen on betting this fight. Uh, on either side, the goes to decision is obviously minus three twenty-five, so a heavy, heavy chalk there. I think whichever side you end up settling on, well, if you start on the Oliveira side, you're fine with the money line. Plus two twenty, plus two hundred is not that bad of a line. But for the DePaula side, you want to try to make some extra money off that, right? You want to go for that decision prop, which is currently sitting at minus one seventy-five, all the way down to minus one forty on certain spots that I'm seeing as well. So. I, I'll lean the DePaula side, but uh, I, I might change my pick uh, depending on uh, what I see from Oliveira. Uh, I, all I have in my head is the Tabitha Ricci fight. I need to dig deeper. I remember she fought Alyssa Garcia, uh, one of uh, Josh Barnett's chicks over there in Risen, um, and, and won that fight pretty handily. We'll see here. I, I'll go DePaula, but going decision is probably, you know, that seems to be the spot. What are you seeing here? Yeah, I won't waste too much time on this one. Uh, I, I think it's probably going the 15 minutes. Fight goes the distance is like minus 325. I think that tells you everything you need to know. Uh, it's likely going the 15 minutes. I think Gloria DePaulo's got slightly better striking. She might have a little bit better output. But I do think she mixes in a takedown or two. I think that's the key. With uh, the Diana Belbita fight, I mean, it was close in the striking numbers. She, of course, did get the one takedown in that fight as well. But it was just like those those little tiny extra things that got the decision. Close decision. Very competitive. But I do kind of agree that I thought she won. The the prior two fights, again, it's decent competition. Cheyenne Vlismas is legit. Jinyu Frey, not all that bad. I, I kind of want to give her the pass in some certain spots. But she's extremely limited. And her opponent, meanwhile, Maria Oliveira, it's much of the same. To me, she looked very like physically not all that strong. She got taken down five times by Tabitha Ricci. Her striking looked okay. I think if this is largely going to be a striking battle that glory to Paolo just ever so slightly does a little bit better similar to the Belbita fight. Belbita was charging forward and throwing wild, but glory to Paolo was just, she was a lot calmer. You know, she was picking her shots a lot better. Accuracy was a lot better. So I just think it'll be much of the same here, but I'm not super confident in either way. And of course the way I think see this fight going is it goes to decision. Oh, it's three to one. Okay, well, I can't get anything there. Okay, well, if I did take to Paola, well, I would take her by decision. Oh, it's you're you're saying minus one seventy to minus one forty. Bum ass Bodog got me at minus one eighty five. So it's like not even a good price there either. Not a whole lot of ways to attack this. I will take Gloria to Paola somewhere on the PRP, but you know near the bottom. 
I like it. All right, let's move on to the next one here. Another women's fight. We got Jasmine Jazduvisius going up against Natalia Silva, debuting Natalia Silva, I should say. And in terms of odds, we're currently looking at minus 235 for the Canadian, plus 200 for Natalia Silva. Uh, interesting fight here, right? Jasmine, all of a sudden, a huge favorite after being an underdog in her last fight. I believe it like a plus 200 underdog, if I'm not mistaken, against Kay Hansen. But she wins that fight largely on her size, her strength, and her ability to bully Kay Hansen in certain spots. And uh, she takes home the decision victory there. Now she's going up against Silva, who you know seems like she'll have a little bit more resistance than what Kay Hansen brought to the table last time around, but still looks like she can be controlled, uh, you know, and, and pretty much goaded into the game of Jasmine here, which uh, you know, heavy clinching, big takedowns, and just a lot of dominant control and dominant position from the Jazz Davicia side. But Natalia Silva, you know, if she is able to retain guard, she's not that bad off of her back. She does throw up a lot of submissions. She's very offensive there. She's gotten a couple armbar victories. She's gotten a couple reversals, even with armbar spots as well. But Jasmine doesn't seem like a girl to me that will she has gotten into submission trouble in the past, but she does a good job in terms of remaining calm and getting out of those positions. And I'm hoping that she can bring that to this fight here because it'll, you know, serve her very well if she's able to on the feet. You know, I don't think it's the, a significant advantage for either woman. Silva throws with a little bit more heat behind her hands, more bad intentions, leaving her chin out there to be touched. But Jasmine doesn't really strike me as somebody that uh, will be able to, you know, pick up on that and counter straight down the middle and take advantage of those spots. I do think that this will largely be a, a grappling fight, you know, with uh, Jasmine trying to control her on the ground. She should win this fight via decision. That's probably the prop that I would go with. But uh, I wouldn't count out a Silva via sub armbar type of women's MMA meme stuff, if you know what I mean. And that line currently is sitting around plus 550 to plus 650 on certain spots for Silva to win by submission. Otherwise, uh, you know, Jasmine by decision. That's currently sitting at minus 140. That seems to be the best way for her to win. And last prop I'll drop for you guys here. Uh, I saw somebody bet it actually. It was Natalia Silva, no decision. So if she wins inside the distance, it's plus 150. But if Jasmine wins inside the distance, then you lose your bet. But if Jasmine wins by decision, it is a null bet. If Silva wins by decision, it is a null bet. So uh, I, I think that's a damn good spot if you do like the Silva side here. But I'm going Jasmine bigger, stronger, and she should be able to bully her way into the position she needs, similar to what she did in the K. Hansen fight. What are you thinking, Cody? You, you agree with the Canadian spot here? Yeah, well, I agree that I think Jasmine Justin Devisius is going to be the bigger fighter. She's got the better wrestling. And in women's MMA, it usually comes down to who's got the better wrestling. So, yeah, I should probably get the takedowns, probably grind her out, probably win a decision. But the line seems a little little off to me. I think Natalia Silva is like a big-ass red flag, potentially trap line of some sorts. Like, think about think about these a, a couple things, for example, right? First of all, she's been on for two and a half years. So... She conceivably could have made a whole lot of improvement. She's only 25 years old. So this is somebody that turns pro at 18, okay? She fights between the age of 18 until the age of, until 2019. So she fought effectively for four and a half years, okay? She fought 17 times as a pro in four and a half years between the ages of 18 and like 22. Her last loss was Marina Rodriguez. Okay? She went the distance with Marina Rodriguez in 2017. She was 20 years old at the time. Marina Rodriguez was 30 years old at the time. This kid is like a prodigy of sorts. She wants to fight. She's competitive. She's been training from a young age. And then since the Marina Rodriguez fight, she's fought suspect competition, but she's won six in a row. She picked up the Jungle Fights title. It's a fourth-round submission. Cardio looked good. Pace looked good. 
I think there's watching the tape on her, super green, lots of holes in her game, this and that. But the last time you saw her, she's 22. Now she's coming back 25. How many skills could she have picked up? Normally she'd fight 12 times in three years. Instead, she's taken that time off. So I, I'm almost thinking because you'll look back on footage on her and be like, oh, she does this wrong and she does that wrong. Almost three years later, the difference between 22 to 25, fought in decent enough competition, last loss being to Marina Rodriguez. She might be one, and we see this with Brazilians all the time. They'll leave, they'll don't look great, and then they come back and it's like, oh my God, made a ton of improvements. She could potentially come out here and be a serious problem. She's at Apollo Costa's gym. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if she's uh, <laughs> saw it already or or this and that. Like Paul Shaughnessy mentioned, if you check it around on Instagram, like she looks in better shape than how she has in the past. But I also mm -hmm. think that's a maturing fighter, right? You, the difference between 22 to 25, muscle mass, physicality, maturity, all those things are going to come. Jessica DeVici, she's 32 years old. She's a slow starter in the sport. So on one hand, you got this Brazilian who's been training since she was a kid, has gotten some decent enough skills, and now is taking time away, coming back, versus Jasmine, who's still improving. 100% she's still improving. She's getting better fight to fight. But it, you know what? It's not as easy as women's MMA. I'm going to put one of them as a more than two-to-one favorite over this other girl because there's not enough information about her. Like, these Brazilians, man, there's, uh, you, you can't sleep on them. So it really does feel trap line to me. But again, as cappers, we can't just go with narrative. You got to go with what you see. And what you see is Jasmine's bigger and stronger and should get the takedowns, end up on top, grind time away. But if this thing's going to go 15 minutes and one of them's getting takedowns and grinding and the other one's throwing up arm bars and landing shots standing in Texas, could be a lot greasier than you would like it to be. So as terms of a prop, I think this thing's going the full 15 minutes. I don't think you're going to get a great price tag on that. Maybe you would try Minus to improve it. Yeah, minus one sixty. Oh, sorry. No. sorry, I was looking at a different fight. My bad. Yeah, I'm no. gonna hit that if it is minus one sixty. <laughs> minus two fifty. It's minus, minus two. Yeah, I'm seeing minus two thirty. I see minus one seventy on five times, but uh, yeah, RIP. <laughs> yeah, you know what? The over two and a half is two twenty five, and the fight goes the distance is two fifteen. So I would just take the over two and a half if that was the case. But that's a pretty chalky prop, I'll admit. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one here. We are pretty much at the halfway point of this 14-fight card, and it is an interesting one. Interested to hear Cody's thoughts on this one. We got Jeremiah Wells going up against Old Man. Well, I guess, is it? can we say Old Man? I guess you can say Old Man in terms of fight years for Court McGee. Let me get his actual age here. 37 years old. Okay, I guess. MMA years. Old Man Court McGee. Uh, in terms of odds, he's actually the slave favorite here. Minus 120. There's a lot of action has come in on Court McGee over the last couple of days. Uh, I believe he was a slight dog before, but now he is a slight favorite. Uh, and I think deservedly so. I already have a bet on Court McGee uh, at plus 100. Uh, and... I just love betting him in these spots, man. When he's going up against guys that are reliant on getting a finish, finishing a guy like Court McGee is very tough. The last guy to do so was six years ago. Uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio finishes him by punches that night. But since then, he's been able to, you know, have that chin test and pass the test. And he goes out there and just puts the guys to the grinder. Uh, and that's pretty much his game, man. If he's able to put a pace on you or put his hands around you and just grab you up against the fence, he's more than likely going to be successful doing so. Especially guy against, uh, especially later against a guy like Jeremiah Wells here. Uh, you know, Wells, we know his cardio is not the greatest. He has won, uh, I believe, a couple of decisions in his career, but 
it just doesn't look the greatest, especially when he goes deep into fights. Whereas Court McGee, that, that guy's cardio looks good, you know, from minute one to minute 15. He can put a pace on guys and really just, just like I said, grind them and, and break them. I, I truly believe he broke Ramiz Brahimai back in January when he put him through the grinders. Kind of a similar opponent that he's going up to uh, here too, right? Both guys usually round one or bust type of fighters. Um but I, I think Wells is obviously the better version of Ramiz Brahimai. Also, how awesome would that fucking fight be if they put Brahimai and Jeremiah Wells together? But uh, in terms of here, man, I think it's going to be very difficult to tap an untappable uh, Court McGee. I don't think he's ever tapped out in his career, if I'm not mistaken, at least professional career. And then... Uh, uh, on the flip side with McGee, the durability, the cardio edge, uh, putting the pace on Jeremiah Wells, as long as his chin holds up, which I believe it will, he should be able to go out there and get the dub here. So the couple props that I was looking at, even just taking him a money line, I think is a great spot here. I think you're getting a really good uh, number on him there. But in terms of a prop, McGee by decision, that seems to usually be the way. I was thinking about the McGee round three. You know, he wasn't able to do it against Ramiz Brahimai. Uh, Jeremiah was, might be able to stay safe in certain spots uh, and, and prolong this fight. So I'm not too privy uh, to the round three, which is plus 1,800 for McGee to win in round three. Uh, I'm not as hot as on that as I, I expected I'd be. But uh, McGee by decision, like I said, plus 150. And if you want any type of hedge, Jeremiah Wells plus 450 to win in round one, or even Wells by knockout in round one is plus 900. Not not too bad of a head spot, but I, I really like the McGee side here. Like I said, took him straight up. Um, but if I were to take a prop, it would be the via decision plus 150. What about you, Cody? Yeah, I got the same thing. I think this is a good stylistical matchup for Court McGee. Like on one hand, I like to harp on the fact that yeah, like you said, oh, old man, Court McGee, he's 37 years old. He's actually only three years older than Jeremiah Wells for the record. <laughs> but but here's the thing with Court McGee. He's actually not 37 years old, right? See, in 2005, motherfucking died, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. when he came back, <laughs> he's actually reborn. So he's about 15 years ago. Saying. So he's probably about 15. His uh, and Now people will say, that, well, that's stupid. It wasn't like he came back as a baby. Well, he had to relearn how to walk and talk. So you go ahead and tell me. Uh, he's just, just an ageless wonder though. now, yeah. dude. He's like Matt Brown, who, by the way, also fucking died of a drug overdose. And now you see him into his 40s, and it's like this dude still throws down. They're built different. Courtney McGee's built different. His problem is that his athleticism is a little bit uh, lacking. His striking, a little bit robotic, a little bit mechanical. His wrestling, just okay. But what he can get by on is he's got heart for days, pretty good pace, pretty good cardio, and he just breaks one-dimensional grapplers. That's his path. One Guys that are one-dimensional grapplers, he can break them. Because as you mentioned, knocked out one time in his career, which was against Santiago Ponzinibbio, prime Santiago Ponzinibbio, yeah. No shame in that, but he's also never been submitted. Like he's super durable. And so when they gave him, when he got initially matched up against Claudio Silva, he comes in as an underdog. I like him because never been submitted before. Claudio Silva's bum, one dimensional grappler. So what does he go do? He boxes him up standing. He actually takes down Claudio Silva three times, stays on top of him. He's not worried about the grappling because defensively, Court McGee, very sound. Now I guess the raw, the Brahimaj fight again, underdog. What does he go do? He boxes him up. He breaks his will. Guy that's 10 years younger than him, you know, just completely outvolumes him, outworks him. And not to boot, five more takedowns, right? He's putting that grind on these guys. He doesn't respect their grappling. He's okay with going on top, or with going to the ground, sorry, and just maintaining that top control and grinding away at them. So with Jeremiah Wells, I think it's much of the same. 
Jeremiah Wells signed to the UFC is coming off quick knockouts, right? Quick, what, 22-second knockout, you know, quick submission in the second. Uh, debuts against Worley Alves, and he just went like a man on fire after him. Like, not sustainable pace, but he's on short notice. It's his debut. He's in his 30s. Why not go for it? So he does go for it. And to his credit, he ends up winning the first round against uh, Worley Alves and then knocking him out in the second. So impressive work. But he's, you can tell that he's foot on the gas, pedal of the metal, going as fast as you can. And against Blood Diamond, strange fight. So, like, of course he's going to take Blood Diamond down and beat him, right? But he hurt himself early in the fight. He ends up on top. His striking looks slow. He looked plodding. He spent four and a half minutes on top of Blood Diamond before he was able to submit him, even though he had such a discrepancy on the ground. And then he openly reveals that he had injured himself in the fight like a lot of red flags that i wouldn't particularly like so in this fight i think he's going to come at court mcgee fast he's probably going to throw the overhand right if he knocks him out and becomes the second man to do so then so be it it's mma but more than not court mcgee's got a giant beard on him and it's uh protecting a pretty good beard because the guy can take a punch if he can survive that first round i think wells is going to start to fatigue court mcgee is just going to put that classic court mcgee grind on him win the second and third round. So I got Court McGee by decision, plus 150, as you mentioned. I also think this is a great live betting opportunity. If he gets folded in the first round, well, you don't got to worry about it. If he loses the first round and is, you know, even better plus money or a slight favorite now, but he's good plus money going into the second, he survived that first. I do expect Wells to start to fatigue and, and slow down. And of course, that's when McGee generally takes over. I, I I get the angle with the live betting and all that, and I absolutely agree in most matchups. That's the way to go. But I would all obviously recommend people to have that pre-fight bet on Court McGee too, right? We've seen sometimes where we think that guy's going to lose the first round. We'll get that better line in the second round, and then it doesn't end up happening. You end up getting minus two fifty. But I I agree with your 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 method there. I absolutely agree. That is something to keep an eye on. But I would beg people, especially at this minus 120 line, make sure you get some early as well because you might not get as good of a line uh, going into that second one. But perfect, perfect strategy live betting-wise. All right, let us move on to the prelim headliner here. We got hot prospect Adrian Yanez taking on Tony Kelly. Minus 270 on Yanez, plus 230 the return on Tony Kelly. I, I, I talked about it earlier on this card, Cody. Uh, you have guys like... Uh, uh, Kyle Dawkins, and you have guys like Phil Hawes that are always like the perennial favorite in their fights. Another guy's coming up that we're going to be talking about, Kevin Holland. They're always that big favorite. But I feel like these two last guys that we're going to be talking about, they, they leave a little bit, you know, more room uh, for their opponent to make up the gap between them, right? Adrian Yanez, great boxer, right? Once he gets into his flow state, he works very well behind that jab. His movement is very good. His striking defense is very good as well. His takedown defense very much improving. Very difficult to see any tape on him getting stuck on his back unless you look way back in his LFA days. I believe he fought Miles Johns, and that was that was a fight where Johns was able to have some success. But here against Tony Kelly, I think he just has to worry about a guy that's, uh, you know, Solid striker in his own right. I feel like Kelly, if he wanted it his way, it would take place on the ground, but I don't think he's going to have that success. Uh, he came in with a great game plan against Randy Costa last time. Just started blasting him as soon as that first bell rung, knowing that Randy Costa is a guy that eventually slows down and will eventually look for that way out. That's exactly what happened in that second round where Tony Kelly felt that he was starting to break, starts delivering more knees to the body, and he ends up in full mount just 
absolutely smashing Mo on top with elbows. But I think it's going to be diff more difficult for him to do that against a guy like Giannis here, who will be popping in with those counter shots, right? And Kelly, he was throwing a lot of wide shots, a lot of kicks, a lot of naked kicks. And I feel like Giannis could absolutely just find that counter and put him down, uh, especially if, if if Kelly gets too reckless. And I think that's going to start to deter Kelly the longer that this fight goes. I see all the people on the value side on Kelly. I I, I kind of get it. Came through last time against Randy Costa, but Adrian Yanez is not Randy Costa. Like, I, I'm not fully on board with, with betting the heavy chalk here on Adrian Yanez, but the guy is damn good with his boxing. And, and I, just, I just don't feel like Kelly is clean enough in that department to make this the fight that he needs to win it. And Yanez has great cardio to go 15 minutes if he needs to. There's no way you're going to break this guy with pressure. He's going to counter you effectively. He's going to put combinations on you. And Tony Kelly's striking defense is not the greatest either. So I, I like Yanez. Sorry, I will say this about Kelly. Good durability. So I do see this going the full 15 minutes. I do see uh, Giannis outpointing him the entire time. I would much rather bet Giannis by decision, which is plus 175, than take that minus 300-ish line that he's currently at. But he should win this fight. I, I, I get the Kelly hype, but I think that people might be... Uh, they may have won money on him against Randy Costa last time around, and they want to keep on this train. But I just I think it's going to come to a stop here against Adrian Giannis. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I almost kind of feel the value side on Tony Kelly, truth be told. I yeah. think a lot of Adrian Yanez is that people really like him, right? He's the flavor yeah. du jour. The UFC I... had put up these graphics. They said this is the top five boxers in the UFC, and they had Adrian Yanez ranked number five. You know, everyone's oh, calling wow. him, everyone's calling him, oh, uh, he's bantamweight George Mosvidal, and he's so slick, and his counterpunching is so great. Let's keep in mind, this is a guy that he won the on the contender series against Brady Huang, right? This is a nobody, right? But the fight before that against Kyle Estrada, Kyle Estrada is a journeyman, dude. He's like 11 and 7. Has lost to really low-level guys. Lost to a guy that was 4 and 5. He squeaks out a split decision against Kyle Estrada. But then because he dices some fool on the contender series, they love him. Then they give him Victor Rodriguez in the UFC. Well, you know, he dices Victor Rodriguez. Okay, I can't say that that's ultra impressive, but a good win for a, for a, for a young fighter nonetheless. But now all of a sudden they're feeding you these three to one price tags and they're telling you how great his boxing is and they're comparing him to George Mosvidal, this and that. And he draws Randy Costa. He loses the first round quite handedly against Randy Costa. He wasn't able to get his punches going. He spent the whole first five minutes defending head kicks and jabs. He did not look particularly good. But to his credit, once Randy Costa tired, which he's known to do, He's able to take over and, and, and take him out in the second round. Then he goes in the Davy Grant fight. Much of the same. He's a big favorite over Davy Grant. I had him on my top ticket that night. I'm a huge Adrian Yanez supporter. I think the guy's clean. He's crisp. But what happens is, is Davy Grant makes it a dirty fight. Sure, he's not a better boxer, but he can make it a scrap. Stay in the guy's face. Unload on big punches. And that's Yanez's problem. If you come forward and you put pressure on him, he's not nearly as good as if you just stand in front of him and have a boxing match. Keep in mind that that split decision win over Davy Grant represents the fourth time in his career that he's had a split decision. His fights are generally close, they're generally competitive, they're generally striking affairs. And in Texas, I think he's from Texas, so that might help him out. I, 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 I'm not 100% certain that He's the guy that I want to be backing as the tune of a three to one price tag. Now, Tony Kelly, it's not a sexy pick. I'll, I'll first of all, first and foremost, I completely agree. He's 35 years old. He come from the MTV cage show back in the day, him and Matt Schnell, you know, uh, this and that, but him and Andrea Lee are together now. And you can see the complete transformation in the both of them, that they're coming in in exceptionally good shape, you know, better game plan, better camp. They got some money now. They're putting it behind them. They're reinvesting. And he himself looks a lot better. Now, you haven't really been given a, a fair shake on this guy. He fought effectively five times 
in eight years. In seven years, he had five pro fights before the UFC signed him. So there's not really a whole lot on there. You can't go back to certain fights and say, he did this, he did that. You can only really judge him on what he's done in the UFC. Now, what he's done in the UFC is that fight with Kai Kamaka, he arguably should have won. The low blow definitely set him back. But he lands 111 significant strikes, but he gets taken down five times. Damn, you know, Kamaka takes him down five times, takes the wind out of his tail. That's why he loses. The Alkazi fight, right? He got taken down five times against Alkazi. Wow, you know, he's a powerhouse. He's strong. He's rugged. He took him down. Those guys are trying to take him down. Randy Costa, not going to take him down. Randy Costa going to strike with him. He came in in wicked shape. He mad-dogged him. He got in his face. He pushed him back. He gave him no space, and he absolutely beat the shit out of Randy Costa the entire time. At no point, at zero point, is Randy Costa ever in that fight. He just goes out and gets shit-kicked. Now, this is the same Randy Costa that was coming off a fight with Adrian Yanez in which he handedly won the first round before gassing out. So I, I think that that style of getting in a guy's face and not giving him any room to breathe is very effective. Tony Kelly knows what he has on the line. He's 35. A win over Adrian Yanez would really skyrocket him up the divisional rankings and give him some of those bigger fights and bigger paydays. And I think that this is a guy that trains completely full-time, completely dedicated to his craft, junkyard dog mentality, never been knocked out, never been submitted. He's going to go out there and he's going to do the damn thing. I think he's going to push a pace. I think he's going to give him no space. He's going to stay, keep it dirty. And in Texas, they're going to reward that. They're going to reward that kind of forwards pressure. Crowd goes crazy. He's from nearby Louisiana. I don't know if he'll have support in the crowd or not. But uh, I think this ends up being a closer fight. And Adrian Yanez is not above being in these close fights. His last two fights didn't look great. The ones before that, very limited level of competition. Tony Kelly's not a big name. So I think that's why people are overlooking him. But I 100% agree, it is the value side. Not only that, if Tony Kelly was to spring the upset, how does he get it done? By decision. And it's like 6-1, to one, Kelly by decision. Oh, hard to look away. So I think it might be my PRP pick. All the way at the bottom, 14 wow. fights. To be honest, Gloria DePaola might be all the way at the bottom. <laughs> but Tony Kelly not far off, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like It is at the bottom. But we got a lot of big favorites on this card, okay? Yeah. I agree with a lot of them. I like a lot of them. One of them's going to shit in the pie. Maybe two of them shit in the pie. I got to figure out who it is. For some reason, I get the impression that maybe it is going to be um, uh, Adrian Yanez, who, of course, is overvalued because people love him. Yeah, again, we're, we're going to talk about another guy later on in this card who kind of follows that same narrative as well in terms of popularity with the with the masses. And I feel like it affects his, uh, his betting line every time out. So we'll get to that very shortly. All right, that is the wrap on the prelims. Shout out to the 60 live viewers that we have banging with us on this uh, Wednesday night on the All-Star. Shout out to the All-Star once again. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that subscribe so you know that there's that you guys are supporting the show. Uh, and that's the best way you can do so. The other best way, make sure you guys hit that like as well because we definitely got to get that number up, uh, especially considering, you know, you guys love the show. I know you guys love this show. This is one of the hottest shows on the All-Stars Network. So we're very happy that, that you guys are, are doing that for us and coming out and watching these shows. Uh, shout out. Shout out, obviously, to Bet Online as well. Uh, link is in the description below. They'll match your initial deposit up to 50%, up to $1,000, I should say. Sorry. Uh, so make sure you guys take full advantage of that. And then shout out to CloudBet as well. Uh, we got about four or five props 
uh, that we'll talk about on the back end of the show that they made specifically for our show so that we can push it for you guys. I think you guys are going to dig it. Again, it's always fun to have different things to bet on, not just the money line, not just the total, not just a you know a regular prop via decision prop. Why not like a Team China prop or a you know other total takedowns on the entire card? We like messing around a little bit more more places you can put your money so uh stay tuned for that on the back end of the show let us get to the main card here and we are starting it off with another middleweight fight in terms of odds we got gregory rodriguez here coming in at minus 170 he's going up against julian marquez who comes in at plus 150 now, Gregory Rodriguez, you know, this line actually opened up as a pick em. Massive money coming in on Gregory Rodriguez to start ballooning him up to a minus 190 favorite. Now he's down to minus 170. And I'm starting to hear more and more love for uh, Julian Marquez the later that this fight week goes on. Uh, I, I, I kind of get it. You know what I mean? The guy's a big dude, has a lot of power in his hands, and he'll fight for your money. You know, we saw it in the Mackie Patolo fight. We saw it in the Sam Alvey fight. And those are the only two fights he's had since he had that uh, extended layoff after his fight with Alessio Di Carico. I believe that was in 2019. Let me get the actual date here for you guys. Uh, sorry, 2018, July 2018. Uh, and then he took off just about three years, just under three years, is when he returned and fought Mackie Patolo in that war at UFC 258. Was able to get his hand raised there with uh, 43 seconds left with that Anaconda choke. And then he rear naked choke Sam Alvey in the second round after uh, hurting him and dropping him in that fight. But he's kind of sloppy, right? Like he, he has... Good, decent striking, but, you know, a lot of it is power-based. It feels like he can be taken down, as we saw in the Mackie Patolo fight. And I feel like if Gregory Rodriguez comes in with a solid game plan, a lot of it would surround around that grappling, getting him to the ground, using that famed jujitsu that we don't see often. Like, he does have a handful of takedowns in his UFC career. Let me get the actual number here for you guys. Uh, I believe it's five, seven takedowns in his three UFC fights. But it doesn't seem like that's what he normally does, right? Like, it seems like he likes throwing his leather. And his his striking is definitely improving, so I understand why he has the confidence there. But I'm hoping that he takes the the smart way here, especially after dropping his last fight to uh, Armin Petrosian. If he takes this fight to the ground, I wouldn't be surprised if he locks up a submission within the first round or round and a half. But the longer that this fight goes, man, I feel like Marquez can make it very dirty, make it very gritty, and he could potentially find the chin of Gregor Rodriguez late. Now, I largely believe that Jordan Williams' knockout was an anomaly in Gregory Rodriguez's career because we've seen him take take some big shots, especially in that Armin Petrosian fight. But the guy keeps on chugging. The guy keeps on ticking. And uh, he's, he allows his durability to shine through. Marquez, I feel like he's that one guy that can shatter that durability if he is able to land cleanly enough. And I can, if he can land it at the right time, which would be later in this fight as uh, Gregory Rodriguez starts to slow down. So the spots I'm looking at is actually violence. Like, Rodriguez, uh, or sorry, the uh, fight doesn't go to decision. It's currently sitting at minus 175. Like, I could see finishing opportunities tremendously on both sides. Um, a, a part of me wonders the uh, the the Rodriguez decision might be live as well if he just chooses to control, not let his cardio go. Uh, but I feel if he does let his cardio go here, he could find that submission. So Rodriguez submission plus 350, plus 400. Fight doesn't go to decision, minus 175. And then obviously on the flip side for Julian Marquez, via KO probably would be the best way to go about it. And that's currently sitting at plus 400. Um, I'll go Rodriguez sub 
fight doesn't go to decision. What about yourself, Cody? Yeah, well, like I think it's going to be a violent fight and that's going to be entertaining, but I don't necessarily agree that it's going to finish inside the distance. Like one thing about Julian Marcus is that he's super tough. Like guy's super yeah. durable. So to beat him, you're really going to have to beat the crap out of him for the full 15 minutes. And we're both agreeing that Gregory Rodriguez probably wins the fight. So I don't know that he just chokes him out. Like Marcus has spent a lot of time working specifically on his jiu-jitsu. His striking seems to have kind of fallen by the wayside. Maybe that would be uh, Rodriguez's best, best path. But again, knocking him out is going to be a task. Rodriguez is also taking the fight on short notice. So I don't know if he's going to come out here and try to get things done early, if he's going to try to conserve himself. I think the longer the fight goes, as you mentioned, probably does favor towards Julian Marquez. But Rodriguez is good enough standing, good enough on the ground that I think he's able to control and win at least two of these rounds. And then he himself survived. We've seen him hurt multiple times in the past, but... Then that last fight against Armin Petrosian was an absolute war of attrition, which he did end up losing. But I think he showed a lot of promise in that fight, showed a lot of good spots. One thing about Marquez is, as you mentioned, after the Chirico fight, he looked like crap, lost. He took three years off. He had like major rotator cuff yeah. surgery, like major, major. Had multiple doctors tell him, you're never going to fight ever again. Had to go get this like MLB specialist. Guy only like uh, operates on pitchers. And this guy fixes him up. He came back against Mackie Patolo. He arguably lost the first two rounds, but Mackie gassed out as he tends to do, and he was able to capitalize on that spot, but he didn't look good. And then the last fight was Sam Alvey, hard to gauge because, you know, a nice little win, I suppose, but Sam Alvey is who he is. But then he pulled out of the fight with Jordan Wright with an injury. He actually, actually, he pulled out of the Jordan Wright with health issues, and then he pulled out of the Kyle Doukas fight with injuries. I think his body's letting down on him. I think the only thing that's letting him down more than his body is probably Miley Cyrus in the DM section because, you know, your body's not responding and neither is she, buddy. Time to let it go. So uh, hopefully Rodriguez, just a little bit of a fresher man, can win two of the three rounds and get the job done. But in terms of props, honestly, like the prop I like the most is fight completes two rounds, which is even money. But the fight goes a distance at plus 150, and the Gregory Rodriguez by decision, which I think is plus 250 right now. Plus 400, I think. Well, if you can get a plus 400, pull the trigger oh, no. on that. I'm seeing points 250. Plus 250, yes. Right, yeah, plus yeah. So I was thinking about Mar- Marquez points 450, which, you know, intriguing if you think he's going to win. But if I was a Marquez guy, which I'm going to go with Rodriguez here, Again, I think it takes you back to the live betting scenario. You and I both are in agreement that the longer the fight goes, Marquez might be able to grind him down. He might be able to take advantage and then open it up, find the chin, do something. But uh, early, I think Rodriguez is just too much, man. This guy's big. He's strong. He's a physical specimen. The, the last thing I'll say is that you mentioned maybe if the fight hit the ground early that Rodriguez would just snatch up a submission. But to be honest, dude, his grappling is kind of not that good. Like, I, I, I don't know for sure. But the last time he submitted an opponent in MMA was uh, Alberto de Oliveira in 2018, and that guy was 30 and 18. Oh, he's like a UFC veteran. <laughs> I know he's actually a UFC veteran. He's been around. He's been around the block a few times. That guy, but he, he he's light on submissions in terms of like anything lately. And then beyond that, he competed on those fight pass invitational grappling matches. The first one against Joe Selecki who fights at 155 pounds, and it was a draw points draw. And then against Cody Steele, who fights at 170 pounds and he, he ends up winning a points decision but his it didn't look like he passes a whole lot he doesn't really fish for the submission a whole lot he's not hyper aggressive with the submission attempts he had armin petrosian in some bad spots on the ground and armin petrosian isn't exactly known for his defensive uh, like his submission defense and yet he thwarted off all the attacks relatively easy so 
I think Julian Marquez will be okay. And I'm just hoping that Rodriguez short notice doesn't gas out and then end up losing this fight down the stretch. I hope he banks those first two rounds and then just able to survive. All right. I love it. Let's move on to the next fight here. Probably the one that I'm looking forward to most on this card. Uh, two guys who have combined for three fights since 2020 over the last two and a half years. We got Demir Ismagulov, 23-1, and one, coming in against uh, Guram Kutataladze, who's 12-2. and two. In terms of odds, we got Ismagulov at minus 150, I guess we could say, and plus 130, the return on Guram Kuta Taladze. Now, uh, Demir, you know, hovering around minus 180 for most of the week, but now money coming in on Gurum over the last couple of days, driving this fight closer to uh, minus 150, like I said. You know, Demir uh, had a had a year layoff, if I'm not mist mistaken, before the Rafael Alves fight, or two years, I should say, uh, close to two years, and uh, right off the bat gets dropped. You know, that's how Alves... Hafiel Alves's game, he he gets on his opponents very quickly. He was able to do that against Demir, but luckily Demir survives, reverses the position, and wins back the round, arguably, by just dropping bows on him for the majority of that round uh, after he was able to recover from getting knocked down uh, and then cruises to, to win the next two rounds there for the most part. Uh, really touches him up with the striking. That's his bread and butter, right? He, he's very good in terms of timing his combinations, gauging his distance, counter-striking with his opponents. He really puts together great combinations and that's usually the downfall of his opponents because they're just not able to keep up with it and he does have some wrestling and good top control in his back pocket if he needs it so he seems like that complete package it's all about remaining active now though right like we don't see him often enough because if he was active enough even Gurum as well if they were these guys could easily be top 15 guys in terms of the skill set alone now, in this fight against Gurum, Gurum, you know, the guy throws with heat and everything that he has, his kicks mainly, but the guy looks to go out there and just knock you out as quickly as he can, like he did against our guy Philippe Silva uh, before he came to the UFC. Uh, and uh, in the uh, Matthias Gamrod fight, we saw him, you know, do very good in terms of his takedown defense and getting back to his feet and then just landing the much better, more significant strikes against Gamrod there. But I just don't think that Gamrod is on the level of Isma Gulov in terms of striking. And I see a lot of open that uh, uh Gulab will be able to take advantage of here. You know, there's a lot of naked kicks on the Guram Kutataladze side, and I feel like Ismagulov will just chew him up in those certain situations. And from there, he should just be able to outpoint him, put put the put the put the volume on him, uh, put the numbers on him. And if he needs to, you know, changing levels, integrating takedowns wouldn't be a bad idea either. But I think that the the power punching style of Guram uh, is not going to pay off this time. I just think that Ismagulov is too complete for him. He had that minor slip up against Alves, like I said, but I think he's going to be back to normal here back to his championship self and hopefully he can start making that run towards the 155 pound title because i truly believe that's where he he should be he's 31 years old you know i still has some time uh but getting a big win over Gurum here which i think will likely come via decision Gurum very difficult to put away uh is magulov decision plus 125 plus 120 on certain spots i'm seeing Sign me up. Ismagulov is a great fighter, and I think he'll showcase it here against Gurum. What about yourself? I think Ismagulov, pound for pound, one of the best guys. Like the problem is, is that I he doesn't it. have the big KOs. He doesn't have the super yeah. sexy finishing abilities. And you know, I compare him in many ways to Shavkat Rachmanov. The difference being, Rachmanov finishes guys. People yeah. love him. Plus, he wears a fox hat. Who doesn't <laughs> like that? But uh, yeah, with this case, it's like Ishmagulov just not the sexiest guy going. As you mentioned, he averages about a fight a year. You know, he's fought in low-level guys like Alex Gorgies and gone to decision with them. He's fought in some upper echelon guys and 
gone to decision with them. So it's a little bit difficult to tell exactly how good he is because he doesn't, he kind of fights infrequently, but a 23 and one record is by no fluke. I think he's got a just absolute surgical jab. He fights long. He's got a good chin. You saw him get hurt by Alves and come right back. You know, sneaky, good takedown defense, sneaky, good wrestling, good cardio, good pace, high fight IQ. I think he does a lot of good decision makings in there. And, uh, you know, someone that I like to back. When you look at Guram Kudalits, I feel like he's almost the beneficiary of a relationship with Kamzat Chemaev yeah. and also the fight with Matus Gamera. Like, realistically, he fought a two-division KSW champion, 16-0, undefeated, smashed everybody in Poland, was one of the hottest UFC signings, and was a big favorite over Guram Kudalits. To go out there and win that fight was absolutely huge. But keep in mind, he wins the first round over a guy that had never fought outside of Poland before. He wins the first round, he drops him. Uh, and then after that, his volume just completely falls apart. He got outstruck in the second round. He got outstruck handedly in the third round where he tired. He only landed like 36 significant strikes through 15 minutes in that fight. It's just he just throws power shots, that's all. Gamrot, once Gamrot got comfortable, he won that fight. In fact, it's a split decision. You can argue that Gamrot should have won, but unfortunately he didn't. If it's a five-rounder, definitely Gamrot. Kudalese just came out. He fought hard for seven and a half minutes, and then he tired. Since that fight, which is huge, huge win, they booked him against Don Madge, and he pulled out. They rebooked him against Don Madge four months later. He again pulled out, a couple injuries. Now that's low-key sidelined him for almost two years. I'm sure he's gotten better, but... The Gamrot fight he showed, he started off fast and then tired out, right? The Felipe Silva fight, first round knockout, 44 seconds. The one before that, referee stoppage, three minutes into the first round. He goes out, he puts pressure on guys, he finishes them early. If he doesn't, he's going to start to tire. That's going to be his downfall against Ishmagulov, who fights as good in the first round as he's going in the third round. He's going to be surgical with the approach. He's going to jab his face off. He's got a two-inch reach advantage. I think he's going to make very good use out of that. And I think that he's going to just pick him away en route to a decision. He's a decision guy, and he's taking on a real tough, durable fighter. It's just got decision written all over it. So in terms of a prop, even if Kudalitz wins, like he could drop Ishmagulov. I say that because Rafael Alves did it. But that one seemed like a flash knockdown to me, if anything. So I'm kind of targeting the fight goes the distance. Of course, that's about two to one, not quite good enough. So I think Ishmagulov wins. I think Ishmagulov's going to win by decision. And therefore, that plus 125, I don't mind it. Again, this is a card that has a lot of these big favorites that you do like, but they might be minus 260. They might be minus 230. They're kind of higher up. I do not mind Demir Ishmagulov here. And at the price about minus 160 on the money line, I feel like, he could be on my third ticket, but he's going to be one of these guys that's really going to juice it up and add a whole lot of value. So my hopes and prayers is that he's going to run into 24 and one. And I do think he's a, a solid talent. He's just not one of these guys with a great highlight reel. Therefore, most fans are not going to get behind him. Therefore, you're going to get some decent prices on him. I believe this is one of them. Yeah, not we're not used to seeing him at this number, at this minus 150 number. Like his UFC debut against Alex Gorgi's minus 500 favorite, minus 310 favorite against Joel Alvarez next time around, minus 225 favorite against Thiago Moises, and then against Rafael Alvarez, minus 550 favorite there. Now you got Groom, who has a little bit of hype around him. That could be factoring into this. But I think once the fight is all set and done, we'll see that Demir probably deserved to be that minus 300 as he normally is. All right, let us move on to the next one here. We got Joaquin Buckley going up against Albert Duraev in a middleweight scrap. Uh, in terms of odds, we got minus 240 on Duraev, plus 205 on Joaquin Buckley. Now, I, you know, Duraev really gave me a heart attack in his last fight against Roman Kopilov because that one should have been a lot easier, but 
Kopilov really rising to the occasion that night, nullifying the majority of the grappling success from Derive and really putting it on the feet uh, to the point that Derive's eye was almost shut. He really took a beating on that one side of his face. But uh, luckily, Derive's uh, tenacity and pressure was enough for him to get the victory that night. But I know it left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, myself included. But after writing the tape here, man, like it's going to be very difficult for somebody to replicate what Kopilov was successful with because he made it very difficult for Derive to implement his grappling game plan, something that he does with ease, you know, throughout the majority of his career. You can see it in the M1 scene. You can see it on the contender series, the way he pummeled that guy through the, through the mat. Um, he's very strong and difficult to deal with in those situations. And I thought that Buckley, you know, maybe if Kopilov could do it, maybe Buckley could do it too. But then you start running the tape and you're like, mm, you know, Buckley is power hands. That's really about it. When you're getting taken down three times in the third round against Abdurazak Al-Hassan, I think that derive, even if gassed, will be able to get those uh, positions as well and, and, you know, kind of just grind him through the mat there. So um, I'm seeing a lot of people big on the inside the distance here. I think this is going to be more so of a grind from the derive side. Buckley does a good job in terms of nullifying damage from his opponents, especially when they're in top position, uh, which I think is going to make it difficult for Derive to get the finish. But I do think that we'll see Derive grind him out, get the decision victory here. I like the over one and a half at minus 150. I think that's a, a pretty damn good line, especially with the total being set at one and a half. Uh, and uh, Derive to win by decision is currently, currently plus 250. I don't mind that either. If you're liking the Buckley side, got to believe KO plus 275. Or if Derive's gas tank is truly god shit bad and Buckley can make him work, uh, Buckley in round three plus 1400. But uh, I think this is a Derive fight from minute one to, to minute 15 myself. What about you? you? You giving Buckley more of a shot or what? Yeah, well, just we always talk about puncher's chance because it's MMA. Anybody could land that shot. But this one, I think he's definitely got a legitimate puncher's chance. Like, I'm not fully sold on Duraev. Duraev's, uh, he's, he's, is he 30 and three? He's got a disgustingly nice record, right? Those three losses in his career, sorry, he's 15, 15 and three. three. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I think he's 30. Anyways, those he, those three losses are all by first-round knockout, right? He doesn't have a great chin. Now, mind you, he was getting knocked out a long time ago. Like, Ramazan Ameev knocked him out, which is definitely a red flag, but it's 2000, yeah, 2012, yeah. right? The fact is, is that back then, he wasn't really known to have some great chin. And then since then, he hasn't really fought any decent power punchers. He draws Roman Kopilov. Roman Kopilov is a boxer. Roman Kopilov has a very suspect gas tank, and he is most definitely not known for his takedown defense. And yet, Derive went one for nine on takedowns against him. His wrestling looked shot. His grappling did not look particularly good. His gas tank did not look particularly good. And his striking looked abysmal. He got his eyes swollen shut. If you're getting hit that often and you're getting hit by Buckley, there's a good chance you could go down. That being said, with Buckley, it's like, well, why? What's there to even like about him? He's got the coolest KO you've ever seen in your entire life, <laughs> and then not a whole lot. Like he was losing the first round against Jordan Wright, but then he knocked him out too. Cool. But then he get knocked out by Alicia Dutrico with a first round head kick. Really bad look. The Antonio Arroyo fight. It was a very bad first two rounds. Very bad first two rounds. Knocks him out in the third. Still a bad fight. The Abdul Razak Al Hassan fight. And Al Hassan's been having very bad luck in the UFC these days. It's a close split decision. No power on display. He was wrestling away more. He scored five takedowns. Like I've never seen Buckley wrestle that much. Guy's supposed to be a power puncher. Why is he wrestling so much? You can kind of feel like he's a little bit lost. And James Cross had mentioned, you guys, uncoachable. You know, he's kicked out of every gym in the area. He's got no training partners. 
And you, I, I've actually seen Buckley post on so, social media a few times. I have no training partners. I give you a thousand bucks to come to my gym, get your ass beat. Wow. Yeah, no, he does this all the time. So I don't, I don't really know that he's putting himself in a position to get a whole lot better. And if he's only going to come in with the same old tricks, guys are going to figure him out. His last three fights, he has not looked good. Those guys have figured him out. If he comes in with some improvements here, great. But he's going to have to shake it up. He's going to have to do something. He's going to have to let his hands go because Derive otherwise is probably going to be inside the space. He might have a little bit more volume on him. Honestly, you know what? The top, I said there was a lot of big favorites. We got to figure out which one, which guys were going to be the apple pie shaders, this and that. To me, I just got like a bad instinctual feeling that the apple pie shitters are going. But I don't know if I got the balls to pull the trigger on it fully. But Adrian Yanez and Albert Duraev just wow. got a bad feeling about both of them. Maybe one of them is going to win. Maybe both of them are going to win. But I got a feeling that if I can avoid those guys for the most part, that uh, I'm going to try to avoid the apple pie shit situation altogether. Buckley's not very good. I still think I am going to pick Derive in the end. But not a whole lot of confidence there because I don't think he's all that good. And I think he's prone to getting caught with a big shot. And it's a bad spot to be in getting hit by a guy like Joaquin Buckley. So normally I would say stay away. But, you know, we're in the business of making prop plays. So what can you do? I guess if you were going to take Derive, you would take Derive by decision. And, that you know, maybe take him down a few times and, and hold that position. But I don't disagree with those people that are saying violence fight doesn't go the distance. Buckley either catches him or Derive might be able to mount some offense from the ground. And I don't really think Derive is much of a finisher, but maybe I'm writing Kopilov uh, off, right? Not giving him a fair shake. He's got some durability, I suppose. Not a whole lot of, not a fight I really want a whole lot of confidence in. I think the official prop that I would take though is just maybe fight goes the distance. Uh, just further proof in regards to Buckley KO, uh, Ramazan Amiv only has two finishes via knockout on his record. Obviously, one of those being Albert Derive. So it's a bad look. It's it a bad a look. Bad look for sure. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and and like I hate to say it, but like uh, the other one, the other guy he lost to is uh, Anatoly Tokov, who's an yeah. absolute beast. But he, yeah, yeah. I know, no, absolute beast. But uh, and it does have some knockout wins on his record, but not particularly known as a knockout puncher. You know, he's got actually it shows he's got 16 KO wins, but most of them are against some lower level Russian opposition. Both these guys hit him early first round, knock him out. So then when you watch that, when you watch his last fight and he's getting he got clipped early, or he gets his eyes swollen shut, but he also got knocked down against Roman Kopilov. I, I don't know, man. He was a minus 380 favorite over Kopilov. This was supposed yeah. to be a walk in the park. Instead, he threw low volume, went one for nine on takedowns, had his eyes swollen shut, gassed out, and got knocked down. None of that was good. Now they're trying to feed you another big dog or another big favorite price tag against someone who's arguably just as dangerous. To me, it just got red flags on it. So that's why I'm trying to keep it modest. Yeah, I'll never forget that night because that was the night that I parlayed him and Alexander Volkov as my big favorites, and they both just won those by the skin of their teeth that night. Volkov beating uh, Marcin Taibura in a very underwhelming performance, but luckily, cash ticket done two weeks ago. Yes, in his teeth. It's like, <laughs> what? How did this happen? Seven to one favorites. <laughs> seven May, Cody. We know this. It's seven May. Anything can fucking happen. Valentina last week. Oh, uh. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Jesus. All right. Let us move on to the next one. We got three fights left. <clears throat> this one should be a fun one. We got Kevin Holland, big mouth Kevin Holland, coming in at minus 280, plus 240 the return on the dirty bird. Tim Means, 
And another, I think this is the fourth fight, Cody, where I'm just like, it, it, it feels like hype is a lot of it in terms of why the betting line is as wide as it is. You know, the public image of these guys, uh, you know, more so with Kevin Holland than, and Adrian Yanez than compared to Kyle Dawkins and Phil Hawes from earlier in the card. But it seems like they're always these big favorites. But, the, you know, Kevin Holland, he always leaves enough room for his opponents to make it close or even just let it slip away from him. Even in his last fight against Cowboy Oliveira. All three judges gave the first round to Cowboy Oliveira, but luckily Kevin Holland was able to get that pinpoint accuracy going, find that chin of uh, Oliveira and put him out. But here against uh, um, against Tim Means, things could get a little greasy. Like we've seen Tim Means, you know, really go to the grappling and the clinching and trying to control his opponents to try to stay away from getting knocked out because that's always been the the issue with Tim Means. He could be up in a fight, but he would catch that big bomb from his opponents and uh, it's nights lights out for him. And that could absolutely be the case here with Kevin Holland, right? Kevin Holland, uh, very long and rangy. I believe he has a six inch reach advantage in this fight as well as a two inch height advantage. But that's usually Tim Means. Tim Means is the longer taller you know lankier guy in his fights which is why he's able to stay safe at distance by just pitter pattering his opponents from distance and then you know doing what's necessary to close the distance without getting hit uh and knocked out but it's going to be difficult to do that against kevin holland especially from range uh, him entering you know that that has me scared to death because i could see you know kevin holland just throwing it straight down the middle as uh tim means closes the distance and he just knocks him out but it's not like this minus 280 is going to be winning the majority of this fight. I feel a lot of that is reliant on him getting the finish here because I feel like Tim Means is just a much better minute winner. He can get the clinch going. He can drag this fight to the ground if he needs to. And I know there's been this all this talk about Kevin Holland and him improving his takedown defense and his ability to get back to his feet, especially after that tumultuous run he went on where he lost to Derek Brunson, Marvin Vittori back-to-back, getting grinded out over you know, 50 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, you know, it's really just the Kyle Dacus and the Alex Oliveira fights that we've gotten since he has claimed that he's making all these improvements with his grappling. His grappling didn't look the greatest in the Kyle Dacus fight, but that's Kyle Dacus. You know, the, the Alex Oliveira fight, that guy's always a wild card, so we can't really put any stock in how he challenged the grappling of Kevin Holland that night. But Tim Means doesn't seem like the greatest wrestler to me. I just feel, though, he could maybe be the stronger guy in the clinch, push Kevin Holland up against the cage, and just frustrate him up there, uh, You know, not leaving any room for Kevin Holland to find that knockout blow. So I believe the value is on Tim Means here. I just do not have the cojones nor the heart to trust that uh, durability and that chin of Tim Means. So I, I lean Kevin Holland by knockout, uh, which is currently uh, plus 200. Um, but if Means is going to win this fight via decision at plus five, no, at uh, plus 425, not a bad line in my opinion, especially if you can get those North score or sorry, uh, yeah, Kevin Hall and North score cards is minus 300. Uh, I'll have to find the other one where it's like, you know, Tim Means decision only what that price line would be because I feel like that would be sexy, but pick is going to be Holland, Holland by KO, but I feel like Means can make this a lot closer than the line indicates. Am I am I hyping up Tim Means too much here, or do you think that Kevin Holland uh, cruises in this spot? No, skill for skill, Dirty Bird's better than Kevin Holland. Like you said, he's got sneaky, okay wrestling. You know, he's got good trip takedowns. His BJJ is not terrible. His striking is just filthy. Very pinpoint accurate. Good volume at times. But the 38-year-old Dirty Bird, not quite himself. They've matched him up fairly light over his last number of fights. I think he's still capable of going out there and beating some guys in the division. I just don't think he's going to really crack into that upper echelon. Kevin Holland 
was considered an upper echelon guy at 185 pounds before everyone realized the guy can't actually wrestle. Him at 170 pounds is going to be the big difference maker. All those skills that he has, I think he's really going to translate better at welterweight. He's six foot three, I believe, but he's got an 81 inch reach. In fact, he's got a six inch reach advantage over Tim Means, and he's going to put it to extremely good effect. I think he's going to touch him up from the outside, beat him to the punch, use the jab. Tim Means is going to be landing counters. Tim Means is going to be staying in his face. He's going to be doing all that. But Kevin Holland can take one hell of a punch, unless it's a headbutt. You know, he can't take headbutts too good, the guy. But I think that if we're going to go punch for punch, I'm going to trust Kevin Holland's chin a lot more. Tim Means might want to try to smother him up against the cage, but keep in mind the guys that have done that, Derek Brunson, one of the top wrestlers, a division up. Marvin Vittori, a title challenger, you know, pretty decent enough grappler, a division up. Kyle Daukas, a division up. BJJ Black Belt. That grappling match against Cody Hammer. Cody Hammer wrestled collegiately at the University of Southern California or uh, South Carolina. He's also Damian Maya's wrestling coach. Damian Maya, one of the more prolific takedown artists in UFC history. But Cody Hammer is a big, strong, good wrestler, not able to take down Kevin Holland. Alex Oliveira. Alex Oliveira is a power grappler, right? He's not a guy that can do it for 15 minutes, but he's going to come at you hard for five. So he's able to do it. These guys can't sustain it. When you look at Tim Means, Tim Means is not a wrestler or he's not physically as strong as any of those guys. I don't think that's going to be the game plan. Game plan is going to be use your striking, counter this guy, make him pay. But giving up the six-inch reach advantage, being in Texas, being in the large cage. By the way, Kevin Holland is from Texas, whereas Tim Means coming in from New Mexico. He's going to be in enemy territory. They're going to score. If If it's close, it's going to get scored towards Kevin Holland. I think he's got him edged on the volume. Uh, Tim Means threw a ton against Mike Perry. That was a fight that he, his volume looked excellent in. But realistically, the very next fight against Nick Dalby, he did not look good, man. He lands 50 significant strikes in a takedown, you know, looked okay. But again, I think it's against Nick Dalby. You can kind of get away with making a few mistakes here and there. Mistakes that I don't think are going to be on the table against uh, Kevin Holland. Last but not least, how do you improve this price tag? 290 Kevin Hall. It doesn't make sense. Money line is not good. So do you go with by decision? Well, I do think Tim Means is a little bit cheney. I think he could get caught. So do you go with that knockout? Like, I don't know. I got like a like a little nagging suspicion that submission is on the table. I've said this in the past with Kevin Holland. He never submits anybody. But he is a BJJ black belt. He does have submissions in his back pocket. It's just when you look at the level of competition he's been fighting. He hasn't really been able to use it. He could have choked out Alex Oliveira had he just stopped punching him in the head and gone for a submission instead, but it was giving it to him, so he took it. Here's the thing with Tim Means. Look at his last three submission losses, okay? We'll go three back. He fights uh, Matt Brown. He comes after Matt Brown hot in the first round, landing excellent strikes, getting in his face. He's actually putting a beating on Brown for the first two and a half minutes, and then Brown returns a favor, puts the pressure right back on him, and he just folds like a cheap tent, gives up a guillotine choke all in the first round. Next one against uh, Cowboy Oliveira. He had fought Cowboy Oliveira once. It was a no contest due to an illegal knee. They run it back. He starts out okay. Second round, Oliveira starts to put pressure on him, melts him. I don't want to say he quits, but gives up his back and gives up a quick rear naked choke. Fair enough. That fight with Daniel Rodriguez. He came out against D-Rod hot in the first three minutes. What happens? Rodriguez takes all of his best shots, returns fire, stings him, hurts him. He gives up a standing guillotine choke. What happens with Tim is that he is the dirty bird, but when it gets real dirty, not that he looks for a way out, just like 
he's got a very uh, a fight style that's entertaining because he either kills you or you kill him. And unfortunately, he will give you the kill more often than not. So I think with Kevin Holland, if he can just stay in the fight long enough, five, seven, ten minutes, he's eventually going to clip him with something, hurt him. And at that point, being the taller guy, having that kind of reach, being a guy that does d doesn't mind going to the standing guillotine choke, I think he'll have an opportunity to lock something up. Could be a rear naked. Could be a triangle, could be an armbar, could be you know a guillotine choke, could be something. Preferably attack the neck, but uh, yeah, I just got a suspicion that if I take the knockout prop, it's going to be a submission. If I take the submission, it's going to be a knockout. If I take inside the distance, it's only plus one fifteen. It's not even really that good of a price tag, but uh, my gut does tell me that Holland will figure a way how to end it inside of fifteen minutes. <clears throat> yeah, one of the props I was looking up here was the uh, decision only line, and uh, they got Tim Means at plus one sixty five. That uh, that that intrigues me because if he gets finished, then the bet is void. Pretty much is what that means. So, uh, yeah, I don't mind that. Uh, you know, what what are the chances that Tim Means finishes Kevin Holland? Uh, I'm not sure if that happens, but uh, for a decision only, I, I like that plus one sixty five there. All right, let us move on to the co main event a fight that was scheduled a couple times over the last couple months. Now they're finally getting it done and they're getting it done in front of a crowd, which is exactly what these guys deserve. We got Donald Cowboy Cerrone coming in as a minus 155 favorite, minus 160 on certain spots, plus 140 the return on Joe Lozon. And again, Cody, I'm very glad that this is happening in front of a crowd because at this stage of their careers, you know, this type of uh, experience that they've been through, the kind of names that they have and the kind of fights that they provide whenever they step in there, good God would have been wasted inside the apex. But thankfully, they're going to be over there in UFC uh, Austin, obviously down there in Texas. And I think they're, that's going to feed them in terms of how this fight goes down. Uh, very kind of easy fight to break down, right? Cowboy Cerrone, notoriously known as a slow starter. That's usually bites him in the ass. And Joe Lozon likes to get going right off the bat. So uh, this is going to be a very difficult start to the fight for Cerrone as Lozon knows that he has to put it on right away, similar to what he did against Jonathan Pierce, which was his last win in his home state and hometown of Boston. That was the Cinderella way to call it a career, you know, drop the gloves in the cage and just retire at that point, being an up-and-coming prospect in your hometown as a big underdog. Uh, but nope, he's like one of those ex-Marines that just gets called back in for a new duty, for a new mission that only the old Rizzle guy can get done. And that's Joe Lozon here against uh, Donald Cowboy Cerrone. The spot that's going to get more or most of my money in this fight is the under two and a half. The fight doesn't go to decision. I'm expecting a finish no matter who it comes from in this spot. Obviously, I lean Cerrone late, but I do think that Lozon is very live to get this done early. We're looking at between minus 160 and minus 185 for the under two and a half right now. Fight doesn't go to decision, hovers anywhere between minus 200 and minus 220. But I think it's worth the juice here. I do think that we're going to see violence from either side. Joe Lozon can absolutely get him out of there quickly. Lozon in round one is plus 375. Lozon by knockout in round one currently sits at plus 600. A lot of action coming in on that. As I do remember, that was closer to four digits earlier. Yeah, it was around plus 1,100. Got a lot of money coming in on it because that is definitely the way to beat Cowboy Get on him nice and early. And I think that's something that Lozon is capable of. Otherwise... 
I think that Cerrone starts to get into his flow state, starts to beat up and batter Joe Lozon from the outside. And we saw Lozon, uh, you know, they threw in the towel in, in that Chris Gritzmacher fight. It does not get good or look good for him the deeper fights go. And if Cerrone can get back into that flow state like he has in the past, get his striking going, get those combinations going, he's really going to touch up Joe Lozon here and get him out of there. So, uh, I, like I said, I leave more so Cerrone in terms of a side, but I really like the under two and a half or fight doesn't go to decision as an actual bet. What about yourself, Cody? Yeah, actually, the last time it was booked, I felt pretty much the same way. Donald Cerrone is a little bit sharper, a little bit longer, better striking techniques, stay to the outside. He's probably just going to pick him off. Joe Lozon would try to get that first start, that quick uh, finish, because he's a bit of a fast starter. And, of course, Donald Cerrone is a bit of a slow starter. So, yeah, it would make sense he would try to get the pounce on him. But to be honest, the theory here is that Donald Cerrone is done. Like, he's all the way done. He's shot to bits done. He's 39 years old. He's had his last hurrah. The fights have been progressively getting worse and worse. You can make arguments that, oh, well, he looked okay against Ferguson early and before he blew his nose on purpose so that the fight would end. And He got killed by Gaethje. He got killed by McGregor. He got, you know, Anthony Pettis is no longer with the promotion. Not a very good version of himself. Loses that fight. The Nico Price fight, unfortunate because of a point deduction, but... And then to get knocked out by Morono, you just you see the steadily the steady decline, right? So at this point, UFC is like you should retire. Dana's been pretty adamant. Donald Cerrone's not the same guy he used to be. He's gone on record saying I don't get up for fights sometimes, and I didn't want to fight Conor McGregor, and I realized I. He, he more or less said, I'm afraid of him. I got to the ring that night and I realized I did not actually want to fight this man and I got knocked out in 40 seconds. Oh, well, like he's been very vocal about his struggles. And so they book him versus him versus Joe Lozon. He shows up, he cries at the press conference about how emotional it is seeing how his kid's going to be there. Tries to make the weight, no good. UFC cancels the fight. Donald Cerrone is not healthy enough to take it. And then they never told Joe Lozon, don't worry, we'll just rebook this. They told Joe Lozon, it's off. Donald Cerrone's not fighting. So Donald Cerrone at this point goes to Thailand. He's shooting a movie in Thailand. He's yeah. Rampage Jackson's in the movie. You can check all of his social media. He's down in Thailand. Budweiser sponsored the set. It's free Budweiser's on Wasn't set. Our guy? Wasn't our guy uh, doing an extra thing for them? Ryan? He is. We're not allowed to name his name because he oh. signed. Yeah, he's got, he's got, because he's an I'm extra bad. in the movie, right? Yes. No, he signed some paperwork. But uh, I, I can't get into that part. What I can tell you is that Apparently, Donald Cerrone enjoys smoking cigs and drinking Ooh. beers. And he, Sasha Polotnikov is down there with them. So he's been getting some, some sessions in with Sasha Polotnikov. But, like, is that really going to get you ready for, a, for, like, the biggest fight of your career? Biggest fight not because he's not fighting for a title anymore. He's not fighting Conor McGregor. He's not getting paid, you know, a million dollars for the fight. Biggest in the sense that this is it. You lose to Joe Lozon, especially if you get finished early. It, they're not going to bring you back. He keeps saying... Oh, got my magical number. You know, I think he wants two more fights. Is that his whole thing? He's got. I don't recall that. I think he's got. I don't know if he's mixing in his Muay Thai. 16. So what is that? 42, 52 fights he currently has. This is going to be his 53rd. Yeah, I don't know what his magical number is, but he's but dead set on he's going to get, you know, he needs a couple more fights and then he's got some number. And I don't know. I don't want to say Cowboy's chasing a payday, but he's not put himself in the best position to go out there. And this is not at 170. This is at 155. Cowboy's had trouble making 55 in the past. He's outgrown it. His frame's a lot bigger. He's been in Thailand shooting movies. He's got opportunities. He's got sponsors. He's got a life outside of cage fighting. He just does it as a hobby. 
But Cowboy's all about been about the party. A party, and I show up to the fight. Guy would go wakeboarding day of the fight. He'd go skydiving. He'd ride a bull. He'd do all this crazy stuff. He had it in his contract that he could go out and do this crazy stuff because he's an adrenaline junkie. He likes motorbiking or motorcycles. He likes dirt bikes. He likes all, all the gadgets, all the toys. But again, he's 39 years old now, so I think it catches up to you at some point. His body's ravished. He's got a lot of fight mileage on him. He's got a lot of injuries. His motivation is waning at times he's lost fights to anthony pettis nate diaz and conor mcgregor where he came out afterwards and said they got in my head and i you know i just i couldn't get up for the fight and this and that well i'll tell you what joe lozon's gonna come at him like a junkyard dog boston strong they got calvin cater in the main event uh, they're gonna go out there and try to put on that new england cartel you know grit if he gets in Cerrone's face gets the hop on him i think he can put him away i think he can put him away early so Lozon by knockout is like plus 500. Paul Shaughnessy mentioned if you did like Lozon, especially the Lozon by knockout, why not chase that Lozon by knockout in the very first round if he's going to come at him hard? A win over uh, JSP is way more significant than anything Cerrone's done for me lately, <laughs> right? And even Cerrone in the grappling. He, he grappled Joe Selecki on that show a few months back. He looked awful, man. Joe Selecki yeah. just took his back and choked him out in three minutes. How many times have you seen Joe, Joe Selecki on a guy's back in the UFC and not do shit with it all the time, right? Yeah. But yet he just buzzsawed right through Cerrone like Cerrone wasn't even there. Joe Lozon's good on the ground. He's scrappy. He's taken three years off. I don't think his chin's going to be an issue because of the layoff. He's got decent striking, decent power. He fights an aggressive style. I think he's got the makings of a live underdog. So uh, I'm going to chase the live underdog. And furthermore, I'm going to chase him by knockout. I like it. I'm glad that we're agreeing on the violence aspect here. So at least both of both of us will be happy if it goes our way. Um, all right. Main event time. Fight number 14 on the docket. Shout out to the 70 live viewers that we currently have with us on this Wednesday night. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Show the All-Stars some love. Shout out to Bet Online as well for sponsoring the show. Link is in the description. Uh, check that out. You guys can sign up and get up to a $50, oh, sorry, 50% match up to $1,000 on your initial deposit. They are great for regional MMA. Anything you want to bet on, there's always something to bet on with Bet Online, uh, especially when it comes to MMA. And usually they are the first people to drop their lines as well. So make sure you guys go check them out. And then secondly, CloudBet. We talked about them earlier on in terms of the props that they made for UFC 275. After we break down the main event here, I'll drop the other ones that they're going to have for UFC Austin. we got a couple of nice ones in there that I can't wait to hear Cody's thoughts on. Um, but you guys can bet on all of that stuff through CloudBet. Link is in the description below. Uh, make sure you guys go check them out. I believe they, if, if I'm not mistaken, they are the first ever crypto sports uh, book in the world. And they have a damn good reputation for it. All right. Let us move on to the main event. Featherweight scrap. We got Calvin Cater fresh off his upset victory over Giga Chikadze back in January. Going up against Josh Emmett, who is, you know, seeming like the guy that's just on the outside waiting for his moment and waiting for his opportunity. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He wants that. He wants that shine. He wants that respect. This is the fight for him to go out there and get it. Like I said, minus 230 on Cater, plus 195 the return on Josh Emmett. I, I I can't recall, but I'm certain that I picked Shane Burgos to be Josh Emmett back in uh, June of 2020. I thought Burgos was the much better striker, uh, and I thought he would be able to land way more strikes there. But as we've come to know with Shane Burgos, his striking defense is 
God, horrible. Like, this guy gets hit, you know, left, right, and center by all of his opponents. You know, he did a good job in that first round, but then Emmett really started to land in that second round. And then in that third round, dropped him, I believe, twice in that round and just fully took over that fight. But Josh Emmett, we know he has big power in his hands. That's really about it, right? I think he has a wrestling background, if I'm not mistaken, but he just doesn't really show it off in the cage. He wants to go slow or go throw a uh, big leather and try to knock his opponents out. We saw the uh, Michael Johnson fight where he's losing 14 minutes of that fight before he eventually gets that knockout victory. Uh, you know, same with the Shane Burgos fight. Kind of getting touched up there, but finally starts landing the big strikes. Dan Ige, that was a close fight as well, but came down to Emmett landing his big strikes and kind of pulling away there. Um, but with Calvin Cater, man, much better technical striker. Got to believe that he'll be able to use his range effectively here telegraph the big shots that are coming his way from Josh Emmett, get out of the way of those big shots and uh, just really paint a masterpiece on Josh Emmett's face. Um, I know a lot of people think that uh, Calvin Cater is super hittable because of the Max Holloway fight, but I think that was just a, that's a big anomaly there. I think that was just a, you know, Max Holloway on God mode that night. Cause a lot of people expected him to do the same thing to Yair Rodriguez as a minus 600 favorite. You know, it, it was nowhere near looking like a minus 600 favorite. I'm not sure if we'll ever see Max Holloway achieve that status that he was at in the Calvin Cater fight. So uh, I am picking Cater here. I do think he is the, you know, viable favorite. I do think the line is accurate. It all comes down to Josh Emmett landing that big shot. Emmett, quite durable, unless your name is uh, Jeremiah... Uh, who is sorry, Jeremy Stevens. Uh, I believe that fight put him out for a long time where he just busted up his face with some big elbows there. But uh, yeah, I think Cater evades the big bombs. I think he cruises in this fight for the majority of the 25 minutes and wins this fight via decision. I am quickly pulling up on DraftKings here the uh, decision only line for Calvin Cater, and that is currently sitting at. Um, oh, it looks like DraftKings messed up on me. But th that's how I would play it. I would also play him to win decision only because I expect him to uh, outpoint Josh Emmett for the majority of this fight with his striking from the outside. Here we go. Uh, decision only, Calvin Cater. Oh, minus 300. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> A finish only, Josh Emmett is plus 150. So, you know, chances of Cater getting the knockout here, I don't know. I, I'm not very high on it. I would much more expect uh, Calvin Cater to win this fight via decision, and him to win straight straight up by decision is uh, plus one thirty. But I don't mind the I don't mind the chalk on him. I'm gonna I'm likely gonna have him in a parlay of some sort. I I think he cruises here. What about you, Cody? Am I am I too high on Cater here, or do you think that Josh Emmett has what it takes to find that chin? Yeah, well, like, the guy's got some nuclear power in his hands. You think he's the divisional... He might be the UFC's all-time knockdown leader. He's got 11 of them. He got a knockdown over Dan Ige, two over Shane Burgos, one over uh, Merced Bektich, one over Michael Johnson, one over Jeremy Stevens, even though he got... Stevens knocked him down way worse. Uh, one over Ricardo Lamas, four over Felipe Aranches. Like, the guy's got killer power. Yes, he does come up from a collegiate wrestling base. Good athlete, but... Yeah, he's completed one takedown in like the last four years, last five fights. He's not looking to wrestle. He's just looking to line you up with those big hands and and put you away. And that's all fine and well and good. But the problem with these guys with just colossal power is a lot of the times that they won't throw a whole lot of volume. They'll just wait often too long for that one big shot and they'll let the numbers fall, fall away from them. I think that's going to be the case here. If you look at the Dan Ige fight, he actually gets outstruck by Dan Ige on the numbers. He got outstruck in that fight. In the Shane Burgos fight, he also did get outstruck by the numbers, but of course it's the knockdowns. The knockdowns are the most meaningful thing that happens in the round. 
it killed me last weekend with the Choi fight, right? It's like Choi's mm-hmm. fighting pretty decent against Josh Kulabau, but the knockdowns are going to steal the round. So as a result, you might be landing more significant strikes, but getting drops never a good thing. He's always been able to rely on that. And what he does is he puts these guys down. But you go further back, the Michael Johnson fight, he loses the first two rounds, as you alluded to, but he only landed 22 significant strikes into the third round of that fight. Super low volume. The Jeremy Stevens fights into the second round. He had landed 18 significant strikes. It's low volume. He's a guy that just waits far too often. With Calvin Cater, you're just not going to be afforded that opportunity to sit there and wait. Like the guy has got great volume. He's going to put pace on you. He's going to be chipping away. Whereas I, on one hand, I say, well, geez, Josh Emmett's got 11 knockdowns. He's got huge, huge power. Well, in that same breath, this guy got hit 445 significant times by Max Holloway and never went down once. You ever seen the movie uh, Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta, with yeah. you know, Robert De Niro plays Jake LaMotta, and then he just gets shit kicked by Sugar Ray Robinson, and then he's like, never knock me down, Ray. Space is a mess, but he never got knocked down. That was the whole thing. Never knock me down. He didn't beat me. Calvin Cater went through a life-changing experience, and then his return bet against Giga Chakots, he's a two-to-one underdog. No one's got – it's the first – it was the first card of the year, wasn't it? No one's got any yeah. expectations for Standard him. It's like, oh, Giga's the man, glory kickboxing, Kukish and karate black belt, so rangy, going to do the same thing Max did. And it's like Calvin looked clean. He looked crisp. He looked on point. His volume was on was on point. His footwork's excellent. His boxing's amongst the best in the division. His KO power is definitely coming along. He's got five knockdowns in the UFC. Four of those have resulted in KOs as well. So, I think everything's coming together for him. And of course, you know, Tyson Chartier as well. I'm actually oh, yeah. booking one of Chartier's fighters for our June 25th nice. show. So I've been inter- interacting with him. And uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the the whole team is centered around how can we get Calvin to the best that we can get him. They put in training sessions multiple times a day, every day of the week. I think they're really doing a good job. In a five-round situation, I've not seen Emmett go into the five rounds where you've seen Calvin Cater do it and thrive in those later rounds if need be. Of course, the Max Holloway fight was an exception, but he really displayed his heart. I want to back guys that are going to fight for my dollar. I want to back guys that are not going to quit because they broke their hand, and Calvin Cater is going to give me 100% his full effort. In terms of how the fight shakes out, I think he'll have the volume. I think he'll have the cleaner boxing technique. I think he'll start to pull away on the numbers. And whereas everybody else gets dropped and that's what allows Emmett to steal the rounds and work his way back in. I think that Calvin Cater will be defensively sound that he'll either take the punch or he'll roll with the punch, stay out of harm's way if possible. And, uh, and then just, you know, let his hands do the handiwork, you know, slowly take over, slowly start to land that volume. And especially in those championship rounds, pull away. And then luckily for me, I can put him on the top ticket because I can just hedge out. Uh, Josh Emmett's got a whole lot of power. He's a two to one underdog. Why not just pull the shoot if we can get that far? but I got to get the five other picks and at least secure us three top lines to make the hedge worth it. Perfect. I love it. I'm glad that we're on the same side there because, uh, yeah, I, I love Cater, and I'm glad that this is a spot for him to uh, go out there and r- remind people of of how good he actually is. Uh, the Giga Chikadze performance was great, but we need another one for him to go out there and prove to some people. All right, before we get to the three best prop bets, let's get these cloud bed props out of the way. So I'm going to pull them up right here for you, uh, and uh, we can get some thoughts from uh, from Cody as well. One of them is uh, Calvin Cater's significant strikes over under 122.5. What would you say, Cody? For the first prop here, sorry, what was it? The uh, yeah, total Cater- rounds? Cater's significant strikes. Oh, yeah. Um, um, It's a five-round fight. 
I'm going to say under. I'm going to say under because you don't want to overwhelm a guy with that much power because they're going to counter you. So if anything, he's going to jab from the outside, minus P's and Q's. But I don't see him putting up four or five punch combinations. I don't see him racking up nearly the same amount of significant strikes he did against Giga Chikots. So I would say under. But it's the total set pretty good, to be honest with you, 122 and a half. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the over there. I do think that we'll see uh, um, Cater start to open up later in this fight. But yeah, you, you don't want to overstrike, especially against a guy like Emmett, who one counter, you know, it might be night night done for you. Uh, next year, fight of the night out of all the fights on the card, Cody, what do you think stands out the most? I would say fight of the night would go to Kelly versus Yanez. I think Kelly's going to come at him like an absolute junkyard dog. Yanez is a hell of a scrapper. He's got good technical boxing. It's largely going to be a 15-minute affair. Kelly's dealt with guys taking him down. That's how you nullify him. Yanez not going to do that. Yanez, pretty much a one-dimensional striker for the most part. Kelly's going to invite that fight. You're going to have excellent 15-minute striking battle. Both guys are have their moments, high pace. And because they're 145ers, you're probably going to get a lot of combinations, a lot of footwork, a lot of speed, right? And that all just going to add to uh, lots of action. So I would say that's my best bet. And, you know, plus 800, not a bad price yeah. tag at all. Exactly. I, I would also consider Lozon versus Cerrone at plus 10,000. Like if it is a knockout, drag him out type of war, as I expect it to be with Cerrone winning late, I could definitely see that getting the crown there as well. Total finishes, 14 total fights over under seven and a half. What are you thinking, Cody? I'm thinking the under, but just quickly to recap, it's seven and a half, right? Correct. So optimistically yeah. speaking, uh, Phil Haas win goes the decision. Doukas, Dolis go to decision. Stamen's more of a decision guy. Ramos Chavez decision. Oliveira de Paula decision. Silva Justice Vicius probably decision. McGee's going to try to grind him for decision. Kelly Yanez probably a decision. It's Marquez like Rodriguez, Mar <laughs> yeah, Marquez is super durable. Ishmagulov's a decision machine. Uh, Durayev Buckley could be a finish. I think Holland fight will be a finish. I think the Lozon fight will be a finish. I think Calvin might be able to get him out late, although I'm kind of leaning towards decision there. But in my mind, you know, five or six would be generous. And this is set at a seven and a half. So yeah. I'd be looking to hit that under. Under seven and a half plus 104 for anybody interested. There. I'll actually like that. And then lastly, total takedowns for the four, uh, all 14 fights uh, over under 33 and a half. 33 and a half. We have a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, grappling based fighters on this card. So I understand why the line is as wide as it is. I remember one of the last ones we did, I think it was set around 24 or 22 and a half, but not 33 and a half. I, I get it, right? You got... You got, uh, who's it here? You got Tim Means, who will likely look for takedowns. Drive looking for takedowns. Ismagula, possibly. Rodriguez, uh, Jazz Devicius, uh, maybe Court McGee later in that fight. Um, Gloria DePaula, I could see going for takedowns. Cody Stamen, right? That's another takedown guy. Drawn Wynn, Phil Haas, maybe they cancel each other out and we don't even get more than one or two takedowns in that fight. And then obviously Kyle Dawkins deletes. They got to believe there's going to be some takedowns there. I still think 33 and a half is high. So I'll I was just, my quick math got me yeah. to about 18, 19. Yeah. If you wanted to give it five extra ones, six extra ones, you're still coming well under, under 33 and a half. So yeah. I would also take the under there. Yeah, under 33 and a half is minus 118 for anybody that's interested in but that. But Deron Wynn had 12 in his last fight. So I think yeah. that's, I think we'll they're see. hoping. Against Phil Haas, though? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's, that's why I'm taking the under. But yeah. I think, uh, I think yeah, optimistically speaking, there are a few wrestlers on the card. They might be able to go rack up quick uh, takedowns.
There you go. All right, let's get to our three best bets, and then we'll wrap this thing up for you guys. I'll start off, as always. I'm going to start with McGee via decision, plus 150. I'm already on his money line. You know, it's not too far off from what the decision prop is. I'm still going to go with McGee, McGee via decision. Secondly, Charlie Lowe's on under 2.5, sitting around minus 160. I think that's a great spot. I think we see either Lozon get him out there early or Cerrone starts to put it together and gets him out of there in the second or third round. And then lastly, I'm going to go Ismagula via decision plus 130. Spoiler alert, it's already one of Cody's top three uh, prop bets as well. I hate picking the same ones as him, but it is truly one of my favorite spots on the card considering the disrespect that I think that Ismagulov is currently getting. He should be a bigger favorite, and I think we'll see him style on Gurom Kutateladze. So Ismagulov decision plus 130 cody your turn my brother yeah well, banking off the same thing i just think he's a decision guy he's got the jab he's got the accuracy Gurum's coming off a two-year-long layoff he's got low output he's not built for three rounds i think that ishma gulov is the rightful guy and then that plus 130 by the only manner in which he wins fights i mean it yeah. just seems too much to pass up so we're on the same page there brother doubt is via decision as well plus 155 uh, i think that he's going to be able to get he will probably be able to outstrike um, deletes fairly clean on the feet i think on the ground you know he's gonna have his advantages if he can get the fight to the ground if he can end up on top if he can make something happen i think he's gonna be live for sure i don't think he necessarily goes against the finish i do think he's gonna win the rounds based on volume positioning actually fighting judges nowadays are definitely rewarding guys that are going to go out there and fight for it put on a little bit of a pace and delete just doesn't have that so Delkis, and again how should he win against this tough georgian opponent by uh, by decision. By the way, Ishmagulov's taking on a Georgian guy. Decision. Mm. Doak is taking on a Georgian guy. Decision. Like Joe that. Lozon taking on a busted up cowboy. Someone taking him by knockout. <laughs> a plus five hundred. Of course, with Joe Lozon submissions uh, on the table, but with Donald Cerrone, like submissions haven't really, other than you know a grappling match here and there, like it hasn't really been the path. I think you overwhelmed the guy. I think you hurt him. When I watched him in the Alex Morono fight, I still had some hopes for him. But to see how much he had regressed in his game, how slow he was standing, uh, his reflexes, timing, his ability to wear a punch, all that did not bode well for a spot, spot here with Joe Lozon, who, again, hasn't fought in a while, but I think that might have been good for him. And the difference is Joe Lozon spent the last number of years away from the sport. He's the head co coach at Lozon MMA. He's got a few students in the UFC. He coaches every other weekend. He's staying active. He's still involved in the sport, whereas Cerrone is still active as a competitor, and he does own the, BM, the BMF ranch. But for the most part, yeah, he just kind of beats to the sound of his own drum and does his own thing. And I think it's going to catch him out at some point. The The line at 500 by a Lozon KO seems very generous. If you were to chase the Lozon by first round finish, more specifically Lozon by first round KO, I think it's plus 1,000. Seems quite egregious, right? So uh, it piqued my interest and uh, I'm willing to give it a shot. There you guys go. Three best prop bets for me and Cody. Also, those cloud bet props that we were talking about. If you guys want to bet on those over, under, total rounds, takedowns, all that stuff, make sure you guys check out cloud bet. Link is in the description below. And shout out to the All-Star for always hosting us on their channel. Uh, make sure you guys drop comments. Let them know what you guys think about the show. And I didn't apologize about it from a, the beginning of the show here. But apologies for the last episode. Absolute shit show with my internet connection. Thankfully, my guy John was able to come in dear the show and just took over and pretty much did the show by himself that night um so shout out to john for doing that and shout out to you guys for bearing with us during that time as well but as you guys just saw over the last two hours me and cody are still here for you guys and we'll be back at it again next week for another uh fight night show i can't recall what it is off the top of my head but very happy to be back in the saddle with my guy cody here uh yeah anything else you want to say on the back end cody otherwise i'll wrap this up 
No, that's been it. We got a PFL on Friday as well, so I'm just going to jump in the grind for that. And then I see uh, Lil, Lil Seal wants to know my thoughts <laughs> on Hugh Janus. Honestly, he's got some pretty big holes in his game, but uh, outside of that, remains to be seen. So uh, I'll catch you guys next time. Always a pleasure. Two hours. Feels like it goes by quick, but hopefully we can make this a nice, profitable card and then uh, move on to the next one intact with a smile on our face. Exactly. I, lo- I love you uh, teasing that dude, making that little <laughs> comment there. Anyway, uh, love you, Cody. Appreciate you doing this as always. Shout out to all the live viewers again. Make sure you make sure you hit that live and like and subscribe on the way. God damn it, we're almost done. Let's get through this. Uh, love all you guys. Good luck on your best this weekend. We'll see you again next week. Peace out.